0: This Week in Startups is brought to you by... Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to Squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And Fiverr. Find the perfect freelance services for your business. Go to Fiverr.com and use code TWIST to receive 10% off your
1: first order.
2: All right, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. It's our news roundtable. You guys love to talk about the news. You like to get my unvarnished opinion on the news. I recently had somebody call me and admonish me because I was talking about the news on Twitter. And I said, have you not been paying attention? And they said, I don't understand. Why do you share your opinion? And I thought about that for a second. And I was like, well, that's what I've always done. It's like, but how does this serve you? And I was like, never really thought about that. But thank you for the candid feedback. Uh, We are now in uh, well into month two of quarantine, shelter in place. If you're watching this as a historical document, it is May 19th, 2020, and we are deep in the coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic, and it's an absolute unmitigated disaster. We won't get into that. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the news and try to give you a break uh, from talking about politics and the pandemic. Of course, it will come up, I'm sure. With me today, two really just great podcasters who I discovered who have a great podcast called uh, Acquired.fm, and I was recently on it, and they are the co-founders of Pioneer Square Labs, which is like a startup studio, VC fund in Seattle. And I'll have them explain what Startup Studio means in this context, uh, or if they're mainly just investing. But uh, I was recently on their podcast and we did two hours and it, we just had great chemistry. So I said, hey, let's see if we can recreate this and have you on the roundtable. Ben Gilbert is with us. He is Gilbert on Twitter. Ben, how are you doing?
0: Thanks for having me, Jason. Doing well.
2: Uh, and Ben, uh, you are the co founder and co host of Acquired FM. How long have you been? Let's start with you giving the uh, background on Acquired FM. How long have you been doing the podcast? What has it done for your business? What's the goal of the podcast, the mission?
0: Yeah, uh, we're coming up on five years. Uh, it's been five years a side project through um, two different companies that I've been at, two different companies that David's been at. Um, the goal has been five to- Five wonderful years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, Spoken like a the, true married couple. Yeah. <laughs>
2: that's right, that's right. Five <laughs> We've, Well, my
1: wife you know, kind of gets jealous sometimes. <laughs> that, uh, she says that I text with Ben more than I text with her, and uh, she would be right.
2: And David Rosenthal is uh, your partner, of course, Ben. And uh, he's got the radio voice. He's got us both beat, Ben, with that soothing David Rosenthal public radio voice. David, why don't you? I'm the voice
1: guy. Uh, Ben's the intellect.
2: Yes, exactly. You know, you said it, not me. Um, Tell me, what is Pioneer Square Labs? Are you a startup studio like Science and BetaWorks, or are you more of a VC, or a little bit of both?
0: Yeah, a little bit of both is the right way to describe it. We started purely as a startup studio, which means we uh, co-found companies with entrepreneurs. Uh, big dev, design, data science team come up with ideas, um, and uh, sometimes you know there there are ideas. Sometimes other people bring us ideas, but the um, thing that's common among all twenty VC-backed companies we've spun out is uh, is that we sort of co-create them, uh, co-found them with entrepreneurs. Um, and then we've got an early stage venture fund that we use to invest in uh, all the Pacific Northwest companies that we don't start.
2: David, when you start a company uh, with Ben and and some founders, how does that economics work, broadly speaking? The criticism I've heard of, you know, the science or the beta works is that they take a very large portion of the equity um, and then they give a small portion to the founders and then they try to raise money. Um, and so they get basically higher gun founders. How, how would that economically work, work out if – I were to join you and work on an idea you had, how would that work?
1: Well, that's a better question for Ben, although Ben and I have started multiple companies together. Uh, I am not part of Pioneer Square Labs. I'm just ah, an investor. Got it. Uh, so I I've didn't been realize that, actually. For... Okay,
2: so David, you're just drafting off Ben. Got it, Ben. Yeah, exactly. You, you that's, explain. That's,
1: that's, that's been my plan all along, and it's worked <laughs> out beautifully.
2: So, Ben, how does that work cap table math-wise, just for people yeah. listening who might want to become CEO of one of your companies or maybe want to come uh, work with you?
0: Yeah, totally. Well, uh, certainly every situation is different, but the commonality is that um, we look like a co-founder on the cap table. So um, obviously, a a meaningful amount of equity um, all in common so that we sort of participate and get diluted down the same way the founder does over time. Um, And the bet that you're making by starting a company with us is that um, that sort of massive amount of acceleration early, uh, building out a great team, validating a product, not feeling around in the dark for a long time um, is worth sort of that co-founder amount of equity.
2: Got it. Uh, and then you might also put in money. Of the 20 companies you've done this, which, which one would objectively an outsider say, hey, that's the most successful, raises the most money, largest number of employees, largest amount of revenue, any of those vectors?
0: Yeah. Uh, a few bit that people might have heard of. One is Jet Closing and the, the title and escrow business um, just did a, a $20 million Series A from T. Rowe Price. Wow. Uh, another might be Boundless, uh, which did a, a Series A from Foundry Group helping people immigrate with confidence. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a few out there that are uh, uh, maybe well-known by consumers.
2: How do downstream investors think about you? Do, do they look at this co-founding thing as uh, an asset on the cap table to have you there? Or do they look at it and go, huh, we got to buy some of those shares out? Because that's what I've heard is kind of what happens with some of these startup studio companies is in order to keep their funds evergreen or or keep the money coming in, they're structured sort of as evergreen funds. So if you were to take the company to T. row, you might sell them 10% of your shares Get more money to start the next company and to balance out the cap table. Is that what actually happens uh, in your case?
0: Um, it I could see that happening later. Um, okay. hasn't been a, a a big driver for us to date. Um, the way that the downstream investors that uh, we've sort of chosen to work with um, look at it as as they know us, they know that we're sort of valuable as as uh, co-founders of the company. Um, you know, we the, the reason why we raised from 14 venture firms when we put together the initial capitalization for the studio was to basically say, hey who select in if you're interested in sort of funding companies that we start And obviously now there's um, dozens of companies that have been involved uh, uh, in raising um, um, raising from external VCS that had nothing to do with capitalizing the studio itself but uh, um, initially we did start with a, a core group of VCS just you know for that reason of knowing that we had a group that was sort of bought in on the model.
2: All right, so let's get into the news. Uh, Clubhouse is a audio phone. It's, I would describe it as uh,
0: social audio.
2: Social audio—that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, you basically open up the app, you see a bunch of talking heads. You see folders. Basically, in the folders are conversations. In those conversations, you will have, you know, maybe two to ten people talking simultaneously, like on a. Uh, Conference call. So it's a little bit of bedlam, but people tend to figure that out pretty quickly and mute themselves or direct the conversation to the next person, like with a handoff, like I would say, like I'm doing here in the podcast Hey, Ben, what do you think of this kind of thing? And then below it is an audience, and you can upgrade people from the audience, like in Turntable FM or some of these other services where they get to become speakers. And the founders of that company did an amazing job having uh, venture capitalists and founders. Uh, use the product. It's not available yet. It's not yet in the app store. I got an invite to it. Started using it. I was like, hey, this could be an interesting investment. Reached out to the founders, um, and then lo and behold, news broke. Uh, I think on May fifteenth, so a couple of days ago, that I think it might have even been Friday. Andreessen Horowitz uh, had invested ten million dollars at around a hundred million dollar valuation in a Series A for a company. That likely, when I've been in it, has 200 people maximum, but typically more like 50 people using it. Um, and uh, the reason I'm kind of laughing is this is just an extraordinarily ridiculous valuation. Uh, obviously, happy for the founders with that. Um, and Ben Horowitz came on the app. I interviewed him actually on the app and asked him some questions about it. And a Benchmark had an offer around 75 to $80 million for this. And the reason... Stated in a story, I think, in Fortune or Forbes uh, for why Andreessen Horowitz got the deal was that Ke- he Mark Andreessen called Kevin Hart, uh, who, you know, is basically in all these internet circles, seems to have his hands in, in, in every circle, He's in the poker circles as well, um, to come on the app and make jokes and uh, the founders were blown away by that and uh, then sold, and this was the controversial part, $2 million in secondary shares, $1 million for each founder, two injuries in Horowitz. So, uh, Ben, what are your thoughts on this, uh, you know, clearly an outlier in funding? And uh, have you been on Clubhouse? Uh,
0: I have. Uh, first, I just want to clarify the Kevin Hart thing. Um, in the Forbes piece, you know, I think that was one of the sort of sweeteners um, that they pointed out may have won the deal um just in conversations with the, the the founders in the app it doesn't strike me that uh they're the type of people that oh my god Kevin Hart gave us a phone call therefore we're going with this VC firm i have to imagine there was a a lot lot more uh that Yeah that oh yeah so it, it, it
2: definitely but, wasn't like get us Kevin Hart to come on for 5 minutes we'll give you the deal. <laughs> but i think they wanted to see who could hustle and the the founders have said uh i i've been in the i've been in the the sort of conversations where paul says i, I really think stand-up comedians will do well in here, and they could have like a paid version where you could kind of do a stand-up set or a test new material. So he seems to be obsessed with that concept.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's a few very interesting trends going on here. I mean, on the valuation front and on the $10 million invested in a, not a pre-revenue, but a pre-launch, pre-app store product. Um, yeah, pre-approval. <laughs> well, hey, Superhuman <laughs> is still <by> a <laughs>
1: uh, pre-app store product. There so. you go.
0: That's a good point. That, that what we're seeing here in the funding environment, I think, is this bifurcation where um, you know, the the prices haven't come down for the hottest companies. So the deals that were definitely gonna get done are still definitely gonna get done and kind of at the same valuations. Um it's more those ones that were they going to be able to raise a round or were they gonna fall up, those are the ones that are having sort of the the problem raising the round. And so it's no surprise that the the very hottest company in consumer social raises ten million at a, at a hundred million dollar valuation. If you had asked me two weeks ago what's their round going to look like, I probably would have thought it was something like that. I'm not sure I would have realized that the $2 million secondary would be in there as well. Um, Explain to people
2: what the $2 million secondary is and why that is so um, notable.
0: Yeah. David, you've been a venture investor longer than I have, so you may be able to better articulate the mechanics.
1: Well, you know, it's just, it's super controversial because it just gets back to like the big question is psychology and motivation. Like it's pretty simple, you know, on the surface, which is like they, the founders, you know, had presumably somewhere around hundred percent of the equity of the company before they sold, if it's a hundred million dollar valuation, they sold an extra 2%, 1% each of them at a million dollars. They still own a bunch of the equity. Why shouldn't they be motivated? Um, but it's just not something that you, I can't think of, a case where this has happened early, maybe you guys can, and the company ended up uh, working out in the long run. Um, Jason, you've obviously seen- Well, Secret was the big
2: one that had a very similar pattern, so that gave people a lot of um, pattern recognition. Secret was an app that allowed you to basically slander uh, anyone anonymously, put a statement, like a tweet out, and it would share it with everybody in your phone book, but you wouldn't. You would know that they were in your orbit, but not. And so people were just started posting like all these salacious things about people. Anyway, the founders in that case, I think, sold three million dollars each, and these dipshits yeah, bought like Ferraris, drove them to work.
1: That's right. That's right. And you think and obviously, most, like presumably, that's not going to happen here. But I think, it, like, no. you know, if Nasim Talib were here, he would be all about skin in the game here, and I think that's kind of what it comes down to.
2: It does. And usually, if somebody is selling in the series B. When the company's at, you know, 100 million or 200 million valuation, has $10 million in investment, what you're saying is, I'm going to reward that founder with a million dollars or $2 million buying their shares. They, they have to give up the shares. So they're selling something, but it'll keep them in the game longer because now they can take the idiot insurance, put out a down payment on an apartment or buy a dope house in any other city but San Francisco and New York, and uh, maybe it takes the edge off. But you know we don't know everybody's individual circumstances here. Uh, somebody pointed out one of the founders has a very sick child, and so you know there could be other dynamics at work. But it does signal, I think, to other founders. And I saw some founders bring up, "Hey, I am a underrepresented founder, and these you know white founders get this craziness." I'm not sure if that's actually valid here, but it does. Uh, and in fact, I I don't know that that's valid. I can understand people having that feeling, but the other thing that was interesting is it does trigger in other founders. I, well, I have a million dollars in revenue and I'm having a hard time raising at a ten million dollar or fifteen million dollar valuation. This is not fair. And what people need to understand is what these uh, founders did better than anybody is they got VC, as I call it, VC product fit. And when you get VC product fit, where VCs <laughs> become addicted to a product, well, then they just, it, it, it sets something off inside of them, a spark, where they- Psychology, yeah. It's a psychology thing. And Uber had this as well, where who took Lincoln Town Cars? VCs. And VCs were like, this is better than my assistant calling and getting me a $150 car, because it's only $90, and I could watch it come, and I don't have to talk to anybody. So I think that's what they had, is VC- product fit lux the uh valet for teslas in san francisco also had this but you can pull up infinite to any vc
1: list. product market fit. infinite I vc product
2: it. fit and when you have that vcs will do irrational and this is irrational uh in terms of a bet let me size. let me take yeah, the, the other bad. side of this Jason. go ahead yeah please
0: yeah, so you're please calling it irrational. Me. so um no enterprise company uh um, in, in this sort of era of technology in the last 15, 18 years um, has become as big and as successful as consumer companies. Consumer internet companies have you know, zero distribution costs, zero marginal costs. They don't have to pay for the content if they're Facebook or Instagram. These companies have all the characteristics of... And if um, they have a, a
1: successful viral loop uh, for a long time, they don't have to do any paid customer acquisition either.
0: Totally. And the network effects are unbelievable in these businesses. And so we haven't seen you know there's only been a handful there's been facebook there's been twitter which instagram. sort of plateaued a little bit instagram snap TikTok, myspace but, friendster yeah i mean there's been a- well, twitter th- is totally
1: having a moment by the way
0: that's true but to the extent that that you can buy you know win the lottery ticket to be in the next one of those like the upside potential is so high 200 billion 300 billion 400 billion dollars of of potential future market cap that to be a, a material early investor for the low low price of a $100 million valuation, like, I, I get it. I, if, if if something's already showing the signs that it can de-risk some of that, then I don't know. All right, the, the, after this I commercial
2: break, that. I'm going to explain why Ben's wrong on This Week in Startups. Stick with us. Hey, do you have a great idea? Do you want to turn it into a beautiful website? This way, you can reach out to your customers and partners and basically change the world. Well, I just was just thinking the other day wow you know we're doing so much remote now and there's all these demo days that can't occur in person what if we had a remote demo day and i checked to see if the domain was available and remotedemoday.com was available and then i said hey let's put up a squarespace site and my team rallied in a couple of hours we wrote all the copy we got a video made and we had a beautiful website up and running at remotedemoday.com This is what you can do with Squarespace. You can basically come up with an idea and start building your website, whether you want to blog or publish content, maybe you want to sell a product or you have a service, maybe you want to promote a physical or online business, or maybe you want to announce an event or a special project like I did with Remote Demo Day. Well, Squarespace is the answer because you build it once and it's beautiful and it's customizable and it's so powerful with this e-commerce functionality built in and analytics built in and you can choose between over 200 extensions. You'll get great analytics, search engine optimization, free and secure hosting and 24-7 award-winning customer support and it's all optimized for mobile. That's what you get when you use Squarespace. They do have that 24-7 Award-winning customer support waiting for you. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code TWIST and you will get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Uh, Thanks again to Squarespace for supporting the podcast for years and for making amazing, amazing software an amazing platform and having just... And that incredible wherewithal to just release feature after feature. Great job over there at Squarespace. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to This Week And Startups. Ben Gilbert is with us. He is the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, which is a startup studio VC firm in Seattle, and he's the co-host of Acquired FM with David Rosenthal, who is the co-host of Acquired FM. Do you have a day job, David, or do you just do voiceover? Work? <laughs> uh,
1: mostly, I just do voiceover. No, I'm an investor. Uh, I've been a VC for over
2: a decade Where are you no? a VC?
1: Uh, well, so I was at Madrona for, uh, okay. up in Seattle for, uh, which is where Ben and I met for many years. Uh, I worked at Maritech, uh, and then a couple of years ago, I co-founded a seed stage fund called Wave Capital. Um, but, uh, but now I invest on my own.
2: Great. Okay. Solo investor. I like it. So Ben, your position, I think is, uh, understandable, right? If, if this is in fact an outlier and do we have enough evidence here that this has the viral loops? That would result in a $10 billion outcome. A $10 billion outcome, if you invested at at 100, is 100x, 100 times 10 million. If there was no dilution or you kept up with your prorata, could be a yum-yum investment for a VC firm. Uh, In the case of uh, an Andreessen Horowitz, it would return probably that entire fund. I think they do like $750 million to $1 billion funds. I'm not sure which one this came out of. But if it was a $750 million to $1 billion fund, this one investment could get the fund to the hurdle, right? To the actual breaking point. So that, that there's, it's not illogical. But the number of people who've made it to a $10 billion market cap in social is four or five companies right now, right? LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram didn't make it. Uh, Snapchat did. Uh, I think that might be it. So uh, if you didn't have other deal flow, this deal would make sense. However, Andreessen Horowitz has exceptional deal flow. Some might argue, I, I would argue they're like somewhere between the sixth and 10th best venture capital firm. Um, and maybe in terms of profile top five, uh, but it's in terms of track record. They're, you know, probably like second tier Um and that's just math and statistics. Maybe they'll become first year later. They're
1: not the Jason Calacanis empire.
2: No, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I've gotten lucky. You know, if, uh, if you take out the top six investments, you know, uh,
1: it's a different story. Well, hey, that's any venture <laughs> firm.
2: I know, that was kind of the joke. Thanks for getting it down. Uh, but anyway, uh, my IRR is, is, is easier to, to have higher because I do smaller dollar amounts. Harder when you have larger ones, obviously. But in their case, if they could invest in five companies, $2 million each, At a $20 million valuation who have more traction, they would be investing further down the line in five companies. That's why I think this investment does not make sense and was an emotional uh, and a competition that got out of control because there's a lot of bad blood between uh, the Benchmark team and the Andreessen team, and this founder did a better job of manipulating and creating a marketplace than any founder I've seen in a long time. What's that?
1: he created flashpoint
2: what does it mean flashpoint just is there a
1: well like i mean given his given his story this particular company the nature of the company yeah. his background being a benchmark eir the nature of that bad blood oh paul like, was, this was an perfectly, eir perfectly yeah he was an eir a benchmark before he started um highlight which was his previous company
2: oh and he gave the deal to Andreessen and horowitz wow what do you think about that, David? That's kind of dirty, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Well, this is to your point about this psychological competition that happened. I want to come back to real quick to psychology and the secondary. Oh, but did
2: Paul also sell a company to a 16 or had a previous company? Uh,
1: Well, uh, Pinterest acquired highlight. I think that Uh, was the,
2: um, Oh, okay. Maybe Pinterest was an AC company or something. So anyway, he's probably, but Hey, what was your point about the secondary?
1: Oh, my point was, you know, it all gets back to psychology. Like this is, you know, to your point, Jason, this is, uh, uh, there is something interesting and potentially special here about Clubhouse, but this, like the national anthem, hasn't even played yet. Like, they're we're not even in the first inning. Right? Like, there's a long like Like on our show on Acquired, we tell the histories of, you know, yes. great companies that have made it to an exit or near an exit. There's so many ups and downs. Like, it is a freaking roller coaster, as you know. And so, like, getting this huge valuation, getting all this capital, getting this secondary before the national anthem is played. It just like, let me, it does super weird things to your psychology as a company and as founders.
2: Oh, to them internally. I want to unpack that in a minute, but let me ask you this. You heard Ben take the side of, hey, this is uh, a good deal. I think I don't want to speak for you, Ben, but Ben, you think it's a good deal and you would have done it, suffice it to say, if you had the opportunity. Yep. Okay. And I think I would rather go with five bets. Now, that doesn't mean if the founder calls me now and says, hey, we got a slice for you, I'm not taking it. So let me be clear. <laughs> let me be clear. Because there we so go. Much, there's the
1: real answer. Because
2: now there's so much motivation here, slipping in 100K just to be on the cap table and take a flyer. It could be worth it for me because it's small amount Wait, wait, wait.
1: Un- unpack that though. What are you doing? You also, you that is the that exact
0: go. same psychology that a $750 million venture firm yeah. should be taking on something that has this kind of potential outlier returns.
2: Yeah, for me, what I would look at here is now that in recent... Har- I would never. If they said to me we're doing an angel round at a hundred million, and we want you to be one of ten angels, I would say no.
0: Right. I would you pass. want to momentum trade it.
2: I would momentum trade it on Andreessen Horowitz is now all in, and literally Ben Horowitz, his wife, and their like entire network of E-40 celebrities was on it last <laughs> night. Yeah. So now <laughs> it's like this is going to become for Ben Horowitz and Andreessen, since they've been mocked by the crazy valuation, it's going to be a point for them to bring this over the finish line or really work hard right. to do that. So there's that like leveling. This is, it's going
1: to be like when the sports writers were telling Jordan or were saying that the Bulls were going to be out in you know in four and five and six and he does that, I took care of you, I took care of you. Yes. Taking care of you. It's
2: basically it. like now they've given him the fire in their belly. So now Andreessen Horowitz is going to pour money into this and get every, so they're going to pull out all the stops, which is great. That's the job of venture capitalists. So I love it. But let me make sure I got the straighter. David, you would do what I said. Wait till they're in the second inning, third inning, and make five bets, or make 10 first inning bets, or five third inning bets. Right? If you had uh, the same amount of capital, I, I would deploy. view it a differently. I would say,
1: okay. for the stage at which this company is at that valuation and with these dynamics, I would have dropped out of the bidding like, for sure makes long no sense, before right? it reached this point. Um, Why? Now, Why
2: would you have dropped out?
1: because of this because like there's there's just so much still unknown like we don't know we don't know the attention of these users we don't know the actual like nature of the network effect and and how strong it is and like yes. how we don't know um, if this
0: works outside of covid
1: Right? Does this work outside That's COVID? That's another one. Yeah. Like, I mean, we can always make a long
0: list
2: of reasons why things don't work. So that I oh, of course, that. no, no. Yeah.
1: Like, I'm not saying this to to throw shade. Like, this is awesome. Like, these experiments should be run. These things should be happening. This right. app should be built. These founders should raise this money. But like, there's just there's so much unknown that is unknowable right now. Correct. Now, two to three years, they've been from now. They've been operating. They've started to figure this out. They know what the what the uh, user lifetime is they know there's there's more of a view on the intensity of a network effect like do right now again i ben can probably you guys can say more than me uh i've spent very little no time in the app um you care about who's speaking do you also is there any reason to care about who else is in there who's not speaking all right this is good we should
2: okay so we i think we got through the the why the investment is notable Uh, Now we're into the intrinsic. Yeah, let's go to the intrinsic value. But Ben, I want to ask you one question about the secondary. What's the most charitable view of the secondary? What's the most cynical view of the secondary? And then where do you land? So what would be when you're talking to people in the background and you're a very connected and candid guy, that's why I like having you on the pod and I like being on your pod, what would be the least charitable and the most positive, uh, the most cynical and the most charitable version of giving $2 million to founders in a company that has 2,000 users, let's say.
0: Yeah. So the most cynical is is just saying, look, uh, um, it's not a bribe because it is a, a transaction, you know, providing shares in exchange for cash. But it is to say, look, those other guys aren't going to give you cash right now. I'm going to give you cash right now. So do the deal with me. So basically um, a
2: bribe. A pot sweetener that a cynical person might say, you're basically paying off the founders. To get the deal, which is what people said about the secret deal,
0: and again, it's a it's a transaction. You know, the shares are worth that because that the the um, fund is purchasing those shares for those price. But yeah, the the charitable one, and this is pretty much where I come down. Is okay. Uh, I don't I don't blame anyone for doing this. If you look at each actor in the equation here. Um, you look at the the venture fund uh, of why they would do this. It's it's to win the deal, um, right. but and then you say, well, that's only bad if it's bad for other people. Could it be bad for the LPs or bad for the founders? Um, for the founders, I think it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, this this really for for oh, if
2: um, I'm a founder of a company that hasn't launched yet and you can buy one oh, yeah. percent of my shares
0: for a million dollars, let's sure, go! But I mean,
2: every founder I, there's takes still that so deal.
1: much risk ahead. Yeah, uh, obviously,
0: yeah. it's great for them, but I think I think it's it's reasonable. For the VCs to give them that, because I think, um, you know, the 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 situation that you described before, it's, it's an opportunity to uh, put a down payment on a house, or you know, pay some medical bills, or do something that um, basically puts you at ease, so that oh my gosh, you can go and focus all of your attention now on running and scaling this company, where you know you're not. your incentives are with the VCs to go make it as big as it possibly can be rather than being, you know, try and and do a small exit or something so that you get your cash, even though the VCs didn't get their multiple. And so I like the incentive alignment there. So that's why it makes sense for the VCs, for the founders. And then I kind of talked about the VCs again. I think it actually makes sense for LPs. Yeah. So so the people who give the
2: venture capital firm their money to invest, like an endowment. So now an endowment like Harvard, let's say, or a retirement fund like CalPERS. Let's take a retirement fund. A retirement yes. fund just gave, paid 20% to invest $10 million. They paid yep. $2 million to invest $10 million in this company.
0: Yep. So let's suppose that this company can go and be a half trillion dollar company at some point. Then- what you're doing there is paying for asset for access to an investment vehicle that no one else has access to lots of people do that it's very common in the finance industry and it takes many forms but this idea what of- would
2: it be on a percentage typically and what's an example of that Access to something that's not available in the and the the finders fee, oh, as it were. Uh,
0: like uh, management fees. Yeah. Like when you pay a hedge fund uh two and twenty to two uh, percent management fee and twenty and percent carried interest, or three and thirty in a lot of like great venture firms cases or great hedge funds cases. Um then yeah, it's it's uh, So they're paying, it, paying that paying...
2: already. So let's assume they're paying the three and thirty to an Idris and Horowitz. Now they're paying another twenty percent, which yep. would be in the fee bucket, essentially. So they're paying twenty-three percent fees. And thirty percent so,
0: carry. So yeah, so you could effectively look at it as a higher fee. The other thing to note is like the the venture fund does get to hold those shares. So, so there's a possibility of Not primary to win. capital into the company that's going to help them grow. But now Andreessen Horowitz does get to own another two percent of this company, right. which their LPs hold. So uh, you okay. know, okay. So David, uh, where do you fall on
2: the cynical or charitable? On the cynical to charitable <laughs> uh, spectrum, where do you fall?
1: uh i fall pretty far on the cynical side now I, to be clear it, unpack it i unpack don't blame it. i don't blame the founders at all like you said no, like this founders is a get the, this founders is a no-brainer proposition the to deal, them right. we all agree yeah
2: founders get the totally. best deal they can
1: uh uh, to me, I fall much more on the cynical side for for two reasons. One, like I was saying earlier, like I think a lot of people have justified this kind of stuff very rarely as early as this, but still, like this has been creeping earlier in companies over the yes. last ten years that this is happening. With the oh, it aligns incentives. Like it t- it takes um, it takes the pressure off of founders, allows them to go for the big win. Uh, I actually like this sounds harsh to say, but. I am a big believer that like when your back is against the wall and you have to make something work like you have no secondary options, you have no exit plan, you have no 401k that is often when you know you are forced to make things work and especially this early in a company where as you say Jason, you have VC market fit very unclear if you have product market fit. Way more even unclear if you have, you know, an advertising model, a business model, let alone defensibility in that industry. There's a long road to go. Um, yeah.
2: See, this is an interesting point, I think, is this is why people were against secondary period. And it was like, well, if the companies are gonna ha- if you want the companies to go for a 10-year IPO, you know, IPO in year 10, 11, 12, like Airbnb and Uber are. Giving some secondary opportunities in the five to ten year window, so people who are fully vested have something and they don't leave the company makes sense, right? But even then, you want them selling ten percent or twenty percent of their shares, um, and you want to mitigate. Yeah. This is Well, just- and in that case,
1: I think so. That that's that's my uh, gets into my second point, which is you touched on, Jason, capital going to the company. Ben, you did too. Capital going to the company versus capital going to the family. Like the point of raising an early stage financing if you're a founder if you're like a purely rational founder is like you are taking on capital you are selling equity which is painful to you to get resources that you need to build the company and grow it so that the value is greater in the future that you own Uh, that's not what's happening here Um, and like this use of capital if anything is neutral to the business uh, and potentially long-term detrimental to the business
0: yeah, so yeah, there you there's, have this oh, double go ahead upside a that an investor gets by investing. They get the upside of now I get to own a material amount of this company and this company just became more valuable cuz now it's capitalized. And in this situation it only has the one benefit of now I get to own shares in the company.
2: Yeah. And the, you know this is one thing that I think we can't um we, you can't discount is that when Andreessen Horowitz's name or Sequoia's or benchmarks on a company, it does get more valuable. I would I would say generally speaking those companies become twice as valuable with those names on it. But having been well, a you've lived it, it. it as a
1: Sequoia founder, right?
2: Yeah, and, and what happens is after you raise that money, your phone rings off the hooks from all the Series B folks. Like there are companies, there are firms. I think DAG is one, and others that were known in the Valley as, you know, looking at the top tier firms and then providing the Series B, and you know they were kind of constructed that way to be the follow-on capital before those funds actually had follow-on funds before anybody realized put that all under one roof. Um, but the problem is, uh, and having raised $100 million for Mahalo right before we launched, so I was in the exact situation you have to then go fill Close. in that valuation. <laughs> um, I, I didn't mean to flex. It's not a, meant as a flex, but I, I did the same thing. I raised our Series B before. So, what are you hating on this for? Oh, I'm not hating on it. <laughs> I, I, I'm bringing it up as a topic of discussion, right? And that's why Dude, I How did, how did that
1: impact the company doing that, raising that much money it, before? It basically gives
2: you five years of runway. Um, yeah. which is dangerous and amazing. I think it did take a little of my focus off because I worked on too many concurrent things. right? And so having less capital might have increased the amount of uh, su- success. Um, but it did give me the ability to take three swings at bat and try three different businesses, the third of which is inside that I'm still on. We We basically did the web startup. We did the YouTube video stuff. And both of those didn't really work out. One, we got clobbered by the search engine changes that Google made. The second one, YouTube, just didn't seem like a great business to be in. And then inside it's still going and it's doing moderately okay. So we'll see. But it is a dangerous uh, thing to do in terms of you have to fill in the valuation. So if you're confident, that, that's not really super dangerous for the founder. Um, it just requires a lot of discipline, which they seem to have. These, these are not first-time founders. So no, giving them $10 million not. doesn't mean they're going to go buy a huge office space and- you know, Ferraris with their secondary. I I get the sense these are much more mature folks who will put that to good use. Um, All right, when we get back from this uh, final break, we'll talk about uh, Facebook buying uh, Giphy, SoftBank's uh, ginormous loss, uh, and Uber's layoffs and the Grubhub acquisition, as well as uh, Twitter and Square, saying the Jack collection of companies, the Jack cohort saying work from home, forever. And maybe AMC is going to buy a movie there, chain That's an interesting idea when we get back on this video Startups. All right, if you're a business owner, and chances you are, since you are listening to This Week in Startups, you're reevaluating the way you do business right now. Establishing your online presence is no longer optional. It's necessary. And pivoting quickly is hard enough. But finding the people to make it happen, well, that can feel like a full-time job. And Fiverr's freelancing platform helps you find the right talent to build your online presence Fast, You can evolve, adapt, and grow your business with Fiverr. They'll connect businesses with freelancers offering hundreds of different types of digital services from graphic design to copywriting, web programming, film editing, voiceover, music, and more. And you know what? One of the things that's great about working with these Fiverr freelancers is that you learn a lot working with them. And they're really good at educating you on how to make better copy or better designs. And we've used them many times for research. You know, we want to meet a thousand founders, let's say, when we're going to Sydney. Well, having somebody do the research and read all the newspapers and magazines and blogs and social media and find all the accelerators, but we got somebody to put that all in a, in a nice spreadsheet for us and organize it so we didn't have to do it. Then we started on second base. That's what you want to do. You want to augment your team and you want to get things done quickly with Fiverr. It's really easy to use. You basically can search and you can search by the deadline you have. Some freelancers are not available today, but other ones are. And you know exactly what you're paying for up front. There is no negotiation and no time wasted. They have 24-7 customer service for any time you have an issue. Fiverr is there to help you. So find talent today at Fiverr.com and receive 10% off your first order using the code TWIST. It's F-I-V-E-R-R.com, two R's at the end, Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com, and you'll find all those great digital services that you need at Fiverr.com. Use the code TWIST for 10% off your first order. It's a really great service. We use it here, and uh, you're going to love it. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, breaking news as we're sitting here. Joe Rogan's podcast is becoming a Spotify-exclusive uh, which is a massive gain. Uh, reading from The Verge here, Joe Rogan, comedian and host of one of the most popular podcasts in the world, no duh, is taking a show to Spotify. Joe Rogan Experience will soon be a Spotify exclusive, meaning episodes, full audio, and video will only be available through the uh, platform starting later this year. Arbiton Rogan Show has been has never been available on Spotify, let alone exclusively to any platform. The show will become available on Spotify globally starting on September 1st, and it will become an exclusive sometime after that point. Listeners won't have to pay for access to episodes, but they will have to become a Spotify user. Spotify said in press release that Rogan retains creative control of the show. It didn't disclose how much it spent on the deal, the company will also work with an ad agency to jointly sell ads against the program. Rogan said last year his show reached 190 million downloads a month. Oh, Rogan's YouTube crap. channel will remain live, but it won't contain full episodes. Uh, there might be clips wow. and other stuff. Wow, that's a big loss for YouTube. The ma- this wow. is a massive get for Spotify, according to the Verge. This is
1: huge.
0: It's huge. The yeah and this is not going to be in the YouTube recommendation algorithm anymore, where it's not going to sort of bubble no, up to people who are watching other... That's amazing. No, no, it's clips no, so will be Clips. There. Clips, clips, yeah, clips just are the, the value clips of YouTube. Just clips. That's yeah. the
2: value of it, and, and that'll just drive more people to the long-form episodes. But I'm going to guess... If we had to guess this deal, it'll come out eventually, because Spotify is public. I am going to... Everybody start thinking about a number per year in value. Um, there have been public reports of 30 million or so. Ah, uh, somebody did like a back of the envelope and said the, the podcast was making fifty million, which should be a million a week, which would be like a quarter million per episode. I don't buy that. Um, I would say if he was doing, f- uh if he was doing a hundred k an episode, is that even possible? Mm. I think the ads are probably twenty five thousand. Maybe he's got four ads. But the ads are still
1: 000. happening, right? It said you said yeah. So the a, ads are going to happen here. They'll
2: they'll they'll be sold. Uh, I'm going to say this is a. Um. Uh, well, maybe they're paying him a guarantee on the ads. So maybe they took whatever his advertising is and doubled it. So if his advertising was in that 30, 40 million a year range, I'm going to guess they're giving him um 75 million a year for five years. So put the total deal value at 350,000 for five years. And I, we don't have the duration of it, but I can't see them doing this for less than five years. So I'm okay. going to say what's five how, what's years how it's, at-
1: What's Stern's deal with the series? I think, it was
2: a, I think it was 200 million a year at the peak. And then he went to three days a week. And so they lowered it. So I'm, I'm kind of using that also as a uh, possibility. So I'm going to go ahead and just say, I put this at 75 million a year, which is 375,000 over five years. So I'm going to put the duration at five. I'm going to put it at 375 for the total value of the deal. You guys want to take overs or unders or make your own speculation of the value of the deal?
0: I'm gonna go under. My original uh, thought when I saw the news flash was that it's in this 200 million category, along with the Ringer, um, which was bought and owned out right now, right? Exactly. They it yeah, this is an exclusive partnership. Uh, I think it's less than three years. I think your price per year is a little high. I think it's 60 million a year, and I think it's a three-year exclusive deal. Hmm. So. so, I think it, to-
1: it it totally depends on how the deal was structured, but I bet it's. I bet there's a guaranteed cash payment of, Well, probably it would probably yeah, a cash payment on top of everything else. I bet in the ten to thirty million a year range, just for like being. Well, that's exclusive. what I'm thinking. Like, if you had thirty-five
2: yeah. million in ad sales, now they're taking that over. Now we yep. have the thirty million dollar. Well, uh, $40 yeah. So then, then I think it. on
1: the on the ad upside. Well, there's two interesting things here. So on the ad upside, I bet. They're they're doing revenue share on the ads, and the promise is they're going to pour a lot more resources into mm-hmm. it. And Spotify has this is what they've been building for the last couple of years with their yeah. whole podcasting strategy is an actual coherent ad platform for advertisers. Yeah, on where's Spotify, Podcasts. hey man? Where's
2: my fucking phone call? Let's go. <laughs> let's make this no, startup to Spotify. Let's, let's do it live. Let's see if we can get a lot Come on, Daniel. People, people, I think no, people <laughs> don't
1: realize Spotify has been doing this with podcasts of all size like even tiny podcasts they're taking they did. Them, yeah they're taking them exclusive yep oh. um i'll be a spotify so exclusive prob- sure why not it started so, okay, i the, still own the- my
2: show and i still control so that's the thing is they don't want to i think the reason they did this podcast this way and they bought out the ringer is the ringer is controllable and it's pg-13 and it doesn't have it's also on of- network of shows it's a network of shows, it's a platform, You know, it's more than just a single individual. But in this case, the single individual could be so polarizing, the guest could be so polarizing, and you're not controlling Joe Rogan, right? And he's going to say things at some point in a comedy show that'll make people try to cancel him on Spotify. Well, there'll be a moment where Spotify will, they'll try to cancel Spotify because he has Alex Jones on, right? And so that's so going to be
1: good for Spotify though. I mean like the same way Well, this way that is what Stern Spotify's is buying. Spotify just Sirius. bought a
2: huge headache like the same way uh Sirius XM had to manage the Stern relationship. Um and maybe Stern actually toned it I don't know if he toned it up or down uh, ultimately. I think he's he definitely become
1: more uh enlightened yeah. over the years.
2: Well, yeah, I mean I think he that's that's his personal journey. I wonder if that is because Sirius wouldn't want to have the ad backlash, but they're subscription-based, uh, so that doesn't make sense.
1: Well, okay. So but here, though, here's the I don't know if this happened. I'd be super curious. I wonder if there's a part of this deal that is tied to incremental Spotify subscriptions that are Yes, which is what Stern this.
2: probably had, right? Uh, so how do you do he, that
1: attribution,
0: though? That's going to well, be Well, it's a very nightmare. simple.
2: If the person listens to more than five hours of Joe Rogan and then subscribes, but they weren't previous a subscriber, you give him the first month. For two months of that subscription very simple so
1: much money i mean the subscription business like this is at some points but like ben and i know one of the companies we've started together is is glow with with psl and the team there uh and we run our lp show on it subscription businesses subscription business model and the podcasting as a media model go together like you know peanut butter yeah. and jelly like you it do you is have to pick shocking one. that you the you big podcasters one, have I not think. done this yet
2: yeah I don't know if Joe Rogan would work as a subscription based product, but I do think
1: they could do something. No, do what we do on the LP show. It's like half free, half paid.
2: I don't think that really works that well. I think you have to be majority. Oh, you're half and half? Yeah. I think it has to be majority. Like, I don't know if you watched um, Sam Harris, but he's at, I think he does 30 minutes free and then the next whatever. It's typically, you know, over an hour's podcast you get sent to the Mm. paid feed. And he controls it all himself. (laughs) He's not on Patreon anymore. He's his own subscription, dedicated. He's a personal friend of mine, and I actually pushed him into podcasting. Uh, Long story. But
0: Uh, yeah, didn't he he come on your show as like his very first? Yeah, I mean, I basically was like, he he was like, how do you,
2: well, no, we were having dinner one night, and Sam was like, what do you think about me doing a podcast? I said, you're built for it. Like, you're an incredible conversationalist. You and I and other folks have sat there until two in the morning talking about like really heady topics. Like, you know, um, we have the same book agent, John Brockman. So the myself, Sam Harris, and some other folks are uh, all like kind of run in that same circle. It's like a bunch of like really smart scientists, and then dipshits like me um, who get to tag along. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, I wonder if they're going to make a run at Sam Harris and those people next, and then we got to see if, they, if how Spotify is going to handle the backlash. Hundred percent,
1: they already have.
2: Yeah, they're probably doing this through CAA. CAA represents a lot. I, I talked to the CAA guys about repping me and you know I don't really do enough I think to make it interesting but we're sold out as a podcast so I mean we're we're low millions of dollars as a podcast what I do you all advertising all advertising we we did a patreon but you know what we produce so much content oh, way typically do patreon. three episodes to do it. I just tested it you know and I'm thinking about shutting it down we did like an ad free version and i i like what you're doing but for me i want to make my money by finding the next uber not off the podcast so i keep Putting, I think we spend 10 percent of whatever we make promoting the show. So we've been doing advertising of the clips on LinkedIn and Instagram and other places just to get more people into the show. So I, I'm looking at this long term, but I already made my nuts. You know, I'm in my bones. Like I think Joe
0: Rogan, like this is like his big score. This is his Uber. Like this is, I mean, this this is uh this is very much like Ninja going exclusive with Mixer. It's basically, yeah, it's it's Joe Rogan's exit where he's taking sort it's of a the soft big exit, cash right? And he still instead owns of the Podcast yeah.
2: One did this with Adam Carolla. They gave Adam Carolla, I think, twenty million a year. Uh, for this his is shows.
1: huge, though. Spotify this, this is so
0: big for the industry. David, Spotify
1: yeah, is, is so much better positioned than any other podcast player. For sure, and they because the business model is total. Well, a Apple, this is like Apple's biggest strategic mistake of all time second so? to firing steve jobs well <laughs> they controlled the whole ecosystem it's called podcast because of the ipod yeah uh, and apple controlled everything and they just refused to show any interest in it They yep. we're a hardware company this is not core to what we do and Even we though won't they buy have music sitting right there
2: like they could have bought companies they bought a, com- a podcasting company i was an investor in called swell which was like the best podcasting oh, yeah. app of its time and um, you know, I think we doubled our money in like a year, and I begged the founders not but they to sell. shut it down right after they they shut it down. Yeah, Swell was just brilliant. They they would list they would they use the card metaphor, sort of like Tinder on your app, and you would swipe forward. It would just show you a podcast. You'd start listening to it, and then you'd swipe forward at some point and get the next one that was the next most interesting to you. And if you were on Joe Rogan and you got two minutes in and you went forward, but then you were on acquired and you went till you know, the end of the episode, well, they're not going to give you another Joe Rogan, MMA, whatever general interest podcast they might send you to this week in startups, right? As the next one in that stack. And then if you listen to that one for a long time, they might send you to 20 minute VC or whatever, you know, they, they would take mm-hmm. you down the rabbit hole. And, and yep. what a mistake. And this is why Apple is going to fail on TV as well is because they don't want to ever be associated with controversial content. And this is where I think Spotify can actually hold the line because they're independent. If people don't like it and they don't like Joe Roggett's content, Spotify would just be like, yeah, don't buy our service. Just like SiriusXM, yeah. like it's an independent Or just company. don't listen.
1: Yeah. Don't listen. Yeah. Well, well, so here's what I think it's different. The- the problem in podcasting, everybody kind of like Spell thought it was uh, a breaker and lots of other folks thought the problem in podcasting was a discovery model. There's no discovery problem in podcasts. Like, how many people do you know that are like, oh man, I wish I, I like I knew I listened to more podcasts. If yeah, anybody, I can't find a podcast like,
2: to listen to is something yeah. I've heard from nobody.
1: Nobody. The <laughs> problem nobody. Is, is monetization. Like, there's no good interface for advertisers other than email and you guys. Making, and it us. Yeah. Making it
2: sustainable. Yeah. Making it sustainable as a model. And this is YouTube's, like, this is a stupid move on YouTube. YouTube should have just said, you know, here's some Google shares. Uh, yeah, for they should have made it work. They should have just made it work. But here's the problem for YouTube and any of these big things. This is why startups have a much, startups and independent companies have such an edge over the big conglomerates. If you're Apple or Google, and Alex Jones, as the best example, has been banned on YouTube, and then he comes on Joe Rogan's podcast. Now you've got senators, congressmen, presidents, and politicians, as well as advertisers and nonprofits going to Ivory Soap and saying, don't buy on YouTube. And then you might have, if you're Apple, a bunch of right-wing folks saying, Apple banned Joe Rogan, don't buy iPhones, go Android. Right, And it's just not worth the adjective for a big company with bigger revenue streams. Now, for Spotify, this is the revenue stream. So Joe Rogan increases that revenue stream so they can just say, uh, mission accomplished when people start coming at Joe Rogan for being controversial. we
0: we, We should talk about, for just a little brief side moment here, what a better business model Podcasts are for Spotify than music is because they get no operating leverage on music. So, uh, uh, you the know, Spotify cost. gets a dollar in for music, and then they have to pay whatever amount of cents out to the the um, uh, the labels. They never get any sort of additional upside with podcasts. You know, first of all, most of the ones on there are free, so people who are joining to listen to to content, you know, is, is only upside. The ones that they own outright that they don't have any any sort of variable costs with, like they should promote the crap out of the shows because they get all the upside on top of the fixed costs that they paid the podcaster. Amazing. So yeah. this is like, they're switching from one of the worst business models ever that they've sort of made work because God, the product was just needed to, and they executed really well there, to actually finding a really, really good business model here. It's so amazing. there's a person,
1: the our our official number one acquired superhero who deserves probably the the lion's share of the credit for this year. And that's Barry McCarthy who is now the former CFO of Spotify. He just retired and is now just a board member, but he was the CFO of Netflix. And oh. through all the run of like the, the transition, well, I think from the very beginning, Right, but he against against knows that transition, so his fingerprints are on original content. And then transition to streaming, yeah. and then the transition to original content. You know what the
2: other really interesting insight here is? Spotify going public, doing that direct listing, and having this currency and being independent makes them so able to withstand this and make bold moves. And you look at a company like Uber now, uh, which we'll segue to in a moment, being able to potentially make a run at Grubhub or, you know, Uber could buy Domino's pizza. Like, I don't know why we're talking about Grubhub. If I'm yeah, Uber, oh, I'm buying should. Domino's for $15 billion, You know, like, I, I'm not kidding. Call like, up Dara.
1: I'm not kidding either. No, yeah. I mean,
2: this is, make a clip here. Hi, Dara. You don't know me. We ran into each other in the Warriors games in the uh, courtside club. Uh, anyway, just, you know, we'll drop that there for a second. Um, and uh, I introduced myself to you and you really seemed like you were completely not interested in the fact that I was the third investor in Uber. Totally reasonable. I'm not your problem now. However... Forget about Grubhub. At six billion, or seven, or eight, or whatever they want. We need to buy as much of Domino's and do a hostile takeover of Domino's now. They're at a fifteen billion dollar market cap. They have a clunky app, but they make pizza that if you eat it when it's hot, that thin crust is damn tasty. And I hate it when it's cold. And I hate the regular one, but that thin crust can work. And people like the twenty-four hours. It's already got a footprint. Let's buy that and have and Uber profitable. drivers making the delivery times even shorter. In 2018, slightly over 50% of podcast listens came from Apple Podcast App. Don't know what it is today because uh, Spotify, I think, started to um, you know gain ground after that. What do we think uh, in I 2022? I just
1: estimated Spotify just passed Apple.
2: They did. So let's go to 2022. What does Spotify's percentage of podcast listenings equal? What do you think?
0: If it's 50% now, let's say. It's not 50% now. It's not? Uh, no. It, it may, it's, it's past 50% in lots of countries, but it's definitely not 50% in the US. Yeah, I think that's it's something like 18, 19% in the US. Okay. So
2: let's say if it's 18, 19 in the US, what is it in five years from now, 2025? Five years from now, you got this aggressive positioning.
0: Five years from now, I think they're over 50%. Yeah. I think they're the Google I, Chrome. Yeah. I think and they're this, Google Chrome. They're Android. Today is the landmark deal. Like this the is first, the turning point, yeah. The first one yeah. was buying um, Gimlet and Anchor. This they is the did, the one. And Anchor they did the exclusive deal. Gimlet and Anchor were like, the those are singles and
2: doubles, with, um, but the, Simps- the Bill Simmons was like the landmark deal that just got surpassed, and this is the actual landmark deal. Right. We'd agree on that. This is more important than Bill Simmons. Oh, yeah. Yes, this
1: is this sure. is landmark. This is like. I don't think bonjo. people understand
0: how important, how big and how just like what a behemoth audience Joe Rogan has. It's it's Bonkers. it's almost unfathomable that a single I person. I assume he's can.
1: probably bigger than Stern. He
0: copied the Howard Stern playbook. I mean, he literally runs the podcast like
2: Howard Stern runs the show, which is I'm going to go three hours and I'm just going to talk about every topic and I, there's no sacred cows and the more controversial it is, the more we're going to lean into it. Um, he nailed the clips, too. Like he nailed clips. For that is huge. Sure. Um, so will Bill Simmons then move exclusive? Because Bill Simmons has... They never brought up the exclusivity thing with Bill Simmons, but why wouldn't they make Bill Simmons exclusive? And does this mean if I have the RSS feed of a show, they're going to just take down the RSS feeds of the show? So I can't use it in Overwatch either. I'm in mean, Overcast.
1: They have done this in cases. See there's a, there's this interesting nuance here though. I, I'm curious to see what they'll do because they still because of the way podcasts work, like they still win if they let some content out, out. there in the yes. open, right? Cuz they if they own it, then they're still monetizing it on other platforms. Yeah, and it's customer acquisition. And they, Right, exactly. They need a they need a front door in yeah. for people to come in and be like, oh, hey, you can listen to this on Overcast, but if you want to hear Rogan and all these other great podcasts, why don't you just jump over and listen on Spotify too?
2: I think what they'll do is, this is how I would execute it. I would just copy Sam's model, Sam Harris's model. The RSS feeds have the first half hour of every show. And at the end of that, they say to listen to the rest of the show, go to Spotify. Can you imagine how infrequently Apple will feature bill simmons podcasts and uh i mean it'll literally be like i every bet the time... still
1: feature like apple is asleep at the switch
2: i really like it it is a this is one of the confounding things about apple as a company and i, I said this last year when i was like listen i think tim cook did a great job of m- managing uh i said this on CNBC. he did a great job of managing apple through the transition but they need to get somebody in there with a bolder vision who will buy stuff because they have the cash the iphone business franchise is now having challenges they they don't report the number of iPhones sold anymore for a reason and they're leaning into like talking about services revenue like app store revenue for a reason because people do not see the need to upgrade their phone as much and it's just not as like um it's not as alluring of a business it's it's a deprecating business now uh so they should buy. Uh, this things. would have
1: been the this would have been the crown jewel in the services narrative. Of course, would have been subscriptions and advertising from podcasts.
2: The problem is they can't do. They can, they'll never be able to compete with Netflix or HBO doing racy content. Nor will they be able to compete with SiriusXM or Spotify now doing edgy content. Let's just put it as edgy. You're not going to have edgy content on an Apple device. They're yeah. Pixar. And
0: they're not going to compete with Disney doing family friendly content.
2: No, and this is why uh, Disney passed on buying Twitter. I don't know if you read Bob Iger's book or listened. Oh yeah, to it. yeah, so good. And they're like, he just called Jack and he's like, yeah, you know what? We we're going to buy Twitter, but sorry, no. I just my gut says I don't want to deal with hate speech. I don't want to deal with policing any speech, right? Or misinformation. And Jack
1: was on the Twitter uh, on the Disney board.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's got to be kind of a bummer for him. Uh, just going quickly through this, um, let's go with. Uh, do, do, go to go to Uber, uh, Uber,
0: Uber Eats. I know, I know Rosenthal's yeah. got some good dirt. Yeah. In yeah. Right, here, we go, here we go,
2: here we go. Okay, so uh, everybody knows we've talked about this uh, and you've about it. Um, Uber is laying off 3,000 people, closing 45 offices. Those are massive cuts. Super um, sad. Stock, it's very sad. Stock went way up, obviously. People want to see these things become uh, more sustainable. Rides are down 80%, which is what people thought would happen. Uh, but Uber Eats is up 52%. And obviously, they're said, uh, you know, they've been seeing green shoots and last three weeks, things have been going up. And in Hong Kong and other places where the pandemic kind of they're on the other side of it, hopefully, uh, they see uh, things rebounding. But the potential Grubhub acquisition has been a lot of talk. Uh, They've been negotiating AOC and Elizabeth Warren came out very publicly swinging, saying we can't for any reason, allow these companies to merge. There were, hasn't even
0: been proposed deal yet. Like there's exactly. no idea on terms. This is like so much. Anti-capitalism
2: is crazy. Let's put a pin in that for a second. Overall, what do you think of the deal, David? David. Should they do All it? Right. Should Uber do it? Jason, at $6 you hit billion? the nail on the head.
1: This whole thing is a quagmire. This is like this is like a land war in Russia. Like you know, you're dealing with regulators, you're dealing with the government. Like for what? For get a, Bill Broder uh,
2: in here. It's red notice. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> for a business model that is very challenged. Like like super th- challenged. Super challenged. Like think about it. Like consumers don't want to pay more than five or ten bucks more than the price of food to get it delivered to their door. Right? For the price of the food plus five or 10 bucks. Now you got to do all of this stuff. You got to get somebody, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of their time plus transportation to go drive to the restaurant when the order comes in, sit there, wait for the order to be ready, mob the restaurant. So, like if you've got a dine in business that's going on and now you've got 50, you know, DoorDash and Uber Eats orders, you know, drivers sitting outside. Good luck retaining your dine-in customers. Uh, not to mention, now you got to employ somebody else at the restaurant to deal with all this. The business model doesn't make sense. So Buy for Domino's. a restaurant to Domino's do this themselves. makes sense.
2: Yes. But for a restaurant to do it themselves, I've been getting pitched, oh, yeah. I'm sure you guys have as well, on companies that are building software. White label. White label. Totally. And... I looked at that and I'm going to invest in one of these. I think if you have one of these companies, email me, please, because I would like to invest in one. I think that this is going to be the backstop and people are going to have roll your own app. And if you have more than 10 stores or you have a loved store, people will download your app and they'll want to use it. I think it's going to be a good business and they'll make 500 bucks a month or whatever it is you know, as a SaaS fee. Yep. But for everybody else, their business is not going to be able to sustain rolling their own app. Enterprise software, et cetera, They should, and they and they probably appreciate paying thirty yep. percent to have this available. So this, this is available. what
1: this is what Grubhub and Seamless were before all this craziness happened. Like people don't remember, Jason. You probably remember Seamless yeah. back in New York. Um, it was it was this. It was just an online ordering platform. They didn't yeah. do any of the delivery. No. Like that was all up to the restaurants to figure out the right way to do it. They had it runners themselves. at the restaurant.
2: So what they would use is they would first use. They might have one dedicated, because I grew up in the restaurant business and I'm from New York. Typically, the way a small restaurant would do this is they would have somebody who would sit at the bar who would do deliveries for uh, you know, five bucks plus tip, and they would just hang out there. They were kind of like a, the original gig workers. And it, it, would, you, it was typically like somebody who was kind of out of work. They just got paid under the table cash. So the restaurant, the bartender would give them five bucks to make the delivery. If they made an extra three or four bucks, they made eight bucks. And then they would probably spend another bar having a beer. They just hang out there. Um, and it was just like side cash. It was a side hustle. Then you would go to the dishwasher or the busboy, the waiter or the owner. If that person was out making a delivery, that's how deliveries kind of worked. Y- you had your own like mini gig economy going on at the bar. Um, and yeah, now I, it's really interesting. I had the, I had the founder of the slice. He has a service that's super competitive. And what I thought was ridiculous about this, trying to stop this deal is, if you look at the market caps of these companies, it doesn't include pizza. It doesn't include Domino's or Slice. So they're talking about these four companies and the market cap of these four companies as if that's the TAM. This is why like people like AOC or Elizabeth Warren trying to opine and come up with a rule book for capitalism is so insane. They think that these... They're so uneducated on topics of business that they think the TAM is those four players. So they're like, we can't have those four players go to three. three. It's like... <laughs> Only thirty percent of people have probably ever use these apps.
0: Yeah, so there's an issue here where not only is and this is the same argument that Zillow made when they got to merge with Trulia, it was it was, hey, the 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 world is not online lead generation for real estate agents, the world is lead generation for real estate agents, of which we are this tiny little percentage of. Yes. And so for restaurants, you know, it's not app-based food delivery, it's all food delivery. Yes. The 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 issue with this whole app-based food delivery concept is, David, you're exactly right. What Seamless and Grubhub were doing before the money rushed in seemed to be a sustainable business model. I mean, these companies were profitable, they went public, but since SoftBank has rushed into DoorDash and since Uber has done their Uber thing and raised the money they raised and launched Uber Eats, like we now have a product in market where we don't know if it has product market fit because it has never been available at the price where the business can continue and cover their costs and so like the experiment has not been run in the last five years of do consumers actually want app-based food delivery in this way because well, we have Grub no Hub idea
2: did.
1: uh well so grubhub the grubhub ceo in q3 of last year uh, they can't i think they canceled their earnings call and he wrote a letter to shareholders instead and he laid all this out and he says in there he says like look we've been doing this for over 10 years the the We've always concluded that the logistics portion of this, like what what Uber and and DoorDash brought in, married on the logistics, is a commodity. It is not possible to operate profitably while doing that. We are going to do it because we must to respond right. to the competition. That's interesting. And, and then at the same time, you've got Domino's sitting over there, which is architected soup to nuts to be a delivery Full business. We, we, yeah, I invested in this company called Private Chef Club that came out of Uber, early Uber folks. That is this. It is architected soup Private to nuts. Private Chef Club? It is Yeah, it's like good eggs for groceries. Private Chef Club is for dinner. Uh, and it's exactly what it sounds like. They have some of the best chefs in San Francisco. They have their own kitchens. They have a hub and spoke model. They order. They get all the orders coming in advance. There's no food spoilage, and the delivery instead of you know the Grubhub or the Uber Eats driver, they go to the restaurant, they wait, they pick it up. It all it all happens in a line. So it's like you go to the yeah. spoke, you pick up ten <laughs> meals, and you drop, 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 drop. Yeah, and it works.
2: Yeah, we had a company like that. Bento it didn't work. They were trying to do the. On time delivery, but then they tried to do scheduling, and is you know there's been a ton of swings at bat here of people. Try, and there, there were also what were the other
0: like single meal delivery ones? There were like three or four other ones. Sprig, that, um, Sprig, uh, Spoon Rocket. Oh, what was the other one? Spoon yep. Rocket. Um, it's 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 worth calling out. And David and his his research for this last night pinged me and was like, if this was acquired an acquired episode, I would totally talk about how Uber Eats actually started as a Sprig clone.
1: It did, like, yeah. Do
0: you remember that, Jason? They I used don't. to Drive around, D- David. Oh, what's they,
2: the story yeah, there? Right. they yeah, that's right. They put yeah. a certain number of meals in the trunk. And they would yep. drop them off. Kept
1: them warm. Yep. Kept
2: them warm and drop them off. Yes. I do remember that. Yes. That was uh, Travis's original experiment. And it then would be DoorDash faster.
1: arrived on the scene and yeah. then they were like, oh no, we can grow way faster if we just do delivery from restaurants. I mean,
2: it's pretty clear yeah, people yeah. will pay for this. You might lose the bottom 10% if you charge what it costs. But
0: wait, I want to dive into that though. This, I think that our whole industry has has a problem where it's not product market fit. It's product market price fit. And product
2: market price fit. Okay. Yeah. Unit economics work is basically
0: what you're saying. Right. And that is not being tested right now. We are testing product market fit without the third missing component.
2: Well, I mean, if a restaurant made it work and Grubhub made it work, there's a way to make it work. The question is how many consumers have access to it? It might be a little expensive. It might be $10 to deliver your food, in which case picking it up makes more sense, right? Right, I've and I
0: guess my argument that. there is like it's a different market then. Like, yes. you yeah, yeah, it's to... a different, it's a different product.
1: But but it's just like ride sharing, right? Like, if if there's only one company, it's not Uber and Lyft. Well, then prices are going to go way up. W- what's that going to do to demand? We we don't know.
2: Right, And it might be actually the the experiment here to to your point might be Uber Pool and Lyft line sharing the car just might not work as businesses. It was a worthy experiment to try for a while, but it actually may not work. Right, Ben?
0: Yeah. Exactly,
2: but we know the ride sharing does, and we obviously know Lincoln Town Cars do. So for high end people doing delivery and paying ten, twenty bucks in fees, it doesn't matter. But I have to say, I look at the fees, and we have a cloud kitchen across from our office, and I walk over and get my Belcampo burger myself, and I just pick it up from a locker because it doesn't make sense for a car to drive around the corner.
1: Well, this is—I mean, Travis figured this out, you know, yeah, years ago too, right? Which is that like the the eats DoorDash model is not the rate right, not the most evolved food delivery model
2: you need to have a hub yeah
1: you need to have a hub and spoke and he got in on the the real estate side of things but like they're going to be tons of i think uh, i think actually sequoia wrote a big piece about this they're going to be tons of new companies started that are restaurants built on top of this infrastructure this right what private chef club is that are that are their own companies and brands that are just architected soup to nuts to do
2: this and this is why it's so idiotic for a bunch of uh politicians to come in and say Let us put our thumb on the scale. Let us try to pick winners. Let's put some regulation on this. When the free market is so cutthroat and hyperactive that consumers are getting services below cost for five to 10 years to then make these systems so efficient that they can actually exist in the world because they're at scale. If politicians had their way, they would have stopped Amazon Prime. They would have said, we are going to stop anybody from having two-day delivery. And we're going to stop Costco from not charging a profit and just having a membership fee because those things are anti-competitive with local stores. Do you want consumers to live in a world where they don't have access to Amazon Prime and Costco? I don't. The reason we have much more food security in the world is because a company like Costco can provide massive amount of calories. And and I think they sell their food at at a break even, right? And they make money off the... Membership. Membership isn't yeah. that the business model? I'm ninety percent sure they would that argue
1: it is. that it's like uh you know we make money in a bunch of different places, but if you look at their 10k, like roughly subscription revenue equals net income
2: basically, yeah and so the, I mean this is why the, the we have to really think as Americans I, I was on CNBC earlier this week and I kind of went off and I was like, as Americans we have to decide or shocked, Jason. There. well, I was like, listen, we have to decide do we want to have a free market and let all these entrepreneurs creatively battle it out? And see what's left after a decade long dogfight? Or do we want to have a bunch of socialist maniacs who've never worked a day in their lives to find the rules of capitalism from the bleachers? They've never been on the field. They've never done this. They've never built these companies. They've never innovated. And now they're going to say, let's come up with a new form of capitalism where. Nobody can be capitalists anymore, and there'll be no more free market to, for people to battle it out. This is a vibrant, amazing market. Let these companies consolidate and be sustainable. Look what happened when San Francisco said you, you, they were going to cap fees or whatever, and Uber's like, "Yeah, we're not going to Treasure Island anymore. Not profitable." I don't know if you guys saw that. Did you guys see that they put a cap? I didn't see that. Yeah, they they put a. It was like when they were in Austin. They were like, uh, "If people are going to be driving ride sharing." we're going to make it impossible for you to do that. You have to go through all these hurdles. And Austin lost ride sharing from Lyft and Uber. Like, okay, we opt out. And they made Austin ride sharing. This is going to be your
1: Chamath moment on CMBC. No, you
2: know, honestly, I mean, it did go a little micro viral or whatever, but I think <laughs> I don't want to, the easiest way to go viral is to do what Chamath's doing. And he, he does actually believe this, which is if you just champion the poor and you champion the downtrodden, you'll just go viral. But this is a much more nuanced conversation that capitalism ultimately leads to gains for everybody. I believe that. If you don't believe capitalism ultimately gain, provides a better result for the human species, well, that's a different conversation. But I think all of us here agree that capitalism, as flawed as it can be on the edges, ultimately results in products and services that are cheaper, better, and more accessible.
1: Well, I think the problem is a lot of, It's so tempting... Even VCs and entrepreneurs fall into the mistake. It's so tempting to look at markets and be like, the way things are is the way things will be. Like, no, there's always going to be change. Like, And as long as there's always change, whatever, you know, like it wasn't the DOJ that killed Microsoft. It was the web that killed Microsoft back then than ever. Like, yeah. you know, it was mobile.
2: Yeah, and they missed it. I mean, look, we started the whole first half of the show talking about this crazy outlier funding of a startup that's not even launched yet. Uh, to the public, and then here we are on the back end, like, we have to create rule sets. Like, this is a vibrant, crazy market that takes insane risks to change the world. That's why we punch above our weight as America. It's, and that's why we're super innovative. That's why we're not getting demolished by other countries. That's why most of the country, com, companies that change the world come from America, because we run the most experiments. We take the boldest action. We try the craziest ideas, and we're not afraid of failing. And we don't create a a, a a game with so many rules that the second you get on the court, you get a ticket, right? Like, you ever watch a basketball game, and they're calling fouls every two seconds, and you're like, guys, just let them play? And the announcers are like, they just got to let them play. Like, that's not a foul. <laughs> like, let let the entrepreneurs play the game. Let them play the goddamn game, and the magic will happen.
1: Well, I think what we need is, is we have it to a certain extent, but we need more of, a kind of safety net ironic given you know what we were talking about with the secondary earlier but a kind of safety net underneath like how many companies have you started jason four or five yeah myself personally
2: yeah oh, oh six or seven i think yeah because like, not include all some of them project. were successes right no like two
1: or three yeah, yeah right i mean same for you know ben and me yeah like but that that's the way the the, the, the uh clubhouse guys like they started highlight highlight wasn't a success you know yeah. but they're back at it like yeah. that's keep going that's what you need absolutely you don't die if you fail
2: um Who's going to win? If we had to pick a winner five years from now, give me the ranking. Let's just, I'm going to, we have four major players, Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Postmates. Those are the big four. Which one is most likely to not exist to get subsumed and then rank the other three?
0: Well, Postmates will get subsumed. That's a or continue as a small business. Like, right. at okay, at some like point, it. someone will make them a takeout offer that they're interested in. Sure. Um, like Uber me. Eats will win because I don't believe the three sided marketplace of restaurant rider. I'm sorry, restaurant driver and food orderer uh, can work without the. Um, uh, sort of like available spike capacity on the driver side that Uber can offer. Got so it. if you think about DoorDash's model, um, if a whole crap ton of people suddenly want food at once, but then for many hours, nobody wants food at all, like they don't have any way to absorb that cushion in the same way that sort of Amazon uses UPS for cushion. But Uber conveniently has this other set of drivers that are sitting around yes. willing to go from point A to point B. Yes. So... I think Uber has the superior business model. So
2: Uber, um, DoorDash, and then Postmates and Grubhub maybe get acquired, is you're thinking?
0: I think so. Okay.
1: I think it probably all consolidates down to one, especially because most of, um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the other topics was SoftBank, right? Like, uh, I believe SoftBank is the largest shareholder in DoorDash. Uh, no, they were pushing
2: like a $10 billion merger. Uh, right with Uber and DoorDash which for i think it was the 16
0: post on the last round so ridiculous yeah a haircut yeah that would be a super haircut
1: um so assuming that there's no more no more funding of that scale available there for is not doordash yeah <laughs> uh, that seems like a given that's a given right and to continue operating on the status quo their runway is you know measured in single digit low single digit years that's not sustainable so no
2: doordash has got to make a move now so what do you think who wins ultimately who's number one who's number two which brand at the end of the day is left standing number one and number two
1: i think it's probably uber unless for some reason they decide that actually it's better to sell consolidate under doordash but that doesn't make sense to ben's point of like they have a supply so
2: uber doordash is yours your order
1: Oh no! I think DoorDash. uh, I think they all. Everybody gets acquired into Uber, GrubHub, Postmates. Maybe pivots or does something else.
2: Here's what I think happens: Uber, GrubHub, number one. Then, I think Lyft and DoorDash merge, Mm. number two. That makes sense. And then you have two players with both, because Lyft is learning a hard lesson right now about having a single dependency as a revenue stream.
0: Uh, and L- Lyft and hundreds and thousands of other companies around the U.S. Yeah, of
2: course, right. Yeah, or like, the world. Well, you know, we always say focus, right? Like, stay focused, and then you realize, like, oh shit, you know, I was so focused <laughs> on advertising. BuzzFeed was focused on advertising. New York Times was focused on subscriptions and advertising, and now BuzzFeed is going to. I don't know. I think they're going to lay off half the company in the coming weeks. That's my best guess is that there'll be half as many people working at BuzzFeed by, in Q4 than there are at the Q4 last year. Half as many, maximum. Because they're an ad-based model. I can tell you, just looking at the ads uh, you know, across the board, if if Facebook and Google ads are 30% off right now, I don't know if you're hearing that from your portfolio companies, yep. that there isn't as much demand, so they're maybe 20, 30% off. If deeper. that's happening to the top two players with the best data, the best platform, the best tools, et cetera, the ability to scale, what is happening at BuzzFeed? What's happening at Vox? Like those places are not subscription based. They don't have content that's I'm not saying this to be mean or anything, but it's not content that people would pay for. It's
1: it's not architected in the right way. It's, it's not architected to yeah. me, though.
2: Yeah. So the whole architecture of the business and Vice, I would put in that as well. Like I think Vice, Vox, and Buzzfeed will be half the size at the end of this year than they were at the end of last year to survive. I think they'll survive, but man, there's got to be some consolidation there. What happens there, do you think, in those at-scale it, media companies?
0: Continue, I think consolidation is the right way to put it. Um, there's a chasm. I mean, there's just a chasm in the media business model where either you're a kind of indie shop or you make it to, to New York Times. You know, I'm not saying you have to be that big, but the other side of the chasm, um, and there's no room in the middle. I think Vox has the best
2: chance. I think Vice has the least chance, so I say Vox. Yeah. Vox, Vox is Fox the best has done some right. run.
1: I think good Vox will roll. Partnerships Netflix up. and YouTube. Yeah.
2: Well, Jim, I know Jim Bankoff. He bought Weblogs Inc. Um, for AOL. That's for right. Me. And so Jim is just a good deal maker, and like I think a good steward of capital. So I could see Jim Bankoff. We should get him on the pod, by the way. Let's do that, uh, Nick. Let's invite Jim Bankoff on the pod. Um, I think he'd be a good steward of capital, and I think he's been able to manage multiple brands, which is what he basically learned from Weblogs Inc. because um, we used to have a lot of conversations about this is how do you keep the Engadget team, the Joystick team, the Blogging Baby team, the Twa team, you know, all these different teams producing great content even if there's overlap. And I was like, just do what content nested. Did You give them their own floor in the building. Like they have their own culture. And Vanity Fair might have a take on George Clooney that, you know, Vogue has a different take and the New Yorker has a different take and they might all want George Clooney for an article and they might all get him three <laughs> different times in the year. But, You don't want one person writing the George Clooney article and syndicating it to all three brands because they all have different takes. And it was like, ah, you know, we used to have these like long conversations. Um, Yeah, I don't know how Vice gets out of this. That seems to be done.
1: Well, I mean, like everything, all the trends are just accelerating and like how many consumers are going directly to web properties to consume content anymore. It's really tough. I I, I mean,
2: uh, I'm, I'm moving inside more into the research side so you know we're like the the idea behind the newsletters that inside we're always to be very focused not a lot of span a lot of data and worth paying for and we really have been leaning into getting people to pay for it and then i'm just like you know what journalists all want to write like all the journalists now this like previous to gen x they all want to do a like um what do they call advocacy journalism right they want to pick a position and then they want to just work at msnbc to take down trump or they want to work at Fox or some right-wing Breitbart to take down Hillary, right? Like they all have this very, uh, you know, pick an angle and then go at it hard and, you know, facts, whatever, you know, like anything else, you're going to build your case. And none of them want to actually do hard research. None of them want to do like the middle of the road stuff. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to stop hiring journalists because this next generation of journalists, they care more about who they're attacking or who they're taking down or who they're Pumping up than they do about the search for truth and knowledge and understanding.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's that, me. there, there's a generalization in there that I don't sure. think is totally fair. But um, no, unpack it then, please. Well, okay. So here's what I think is going to happen to all the talent in journalism: um, the best people at all these publications that are not on the crossed side of the chasm that are in sort of this like, uh oh, we raised money or we grew our headcount and crap, we're not going to make it. Um, The very best people are going to get offers from the New York Times. They're going to get cherry picked until these companies whose value is really based on what's the future stream of content that's going to come out. And without those writers, it's not going to be high. Um, So you'll have uh, people getting picked off the same way that Axios picked off some of the best people to to build that institution. Yeah. Although I do think Axios is in the middle too, I just think they're better run than some of these others. Well, if you look uh, at them,
2: like they're they're definitely not trying to do opinion. If you look at Vox, they have a very like strong opinion-based advocacy I would put Vox in advocacy journalism. I put Axios in I'll call truth journalism, like let's report the truth as opposed to or middle middle Yeah, what would you call it? Like just people who want to report the truth or knowledge-based journalism in I don't know journalism that makes you smarter like i think the other ones vox like they have a position they want to take buzzfeed feels like position journalism at times to me
0: yeah and then i think the other thing that's going to happen is that you're going to see more and more of these people who've built a personal brand go indie yes. and so you look at polina from fortune who wrote term sheet for a while like started her own email newsletter charges Substack. for it Substack. Like, yeah, and yeah. I think that's going to start happening more and more and more where you're going to get this bifurcation of the best people are either going to flip to indie if they have the personal credibility and the the runway personally to be able to d- pull that off over the course of the next year. Otherwise, they're going to get picked off and then you're going to have, you know, B and C players that are left um and not all bnc players that's a sort of broad generalization but at, in general the talent's going to wither at those non-branded yeah. right non-branded talent unbranded talent right so the it's sort of like
2: the podcasting space if you want to do a podcast from your you know bedroom or whatever and you don't care about making money great go for it but you know it's going to become a hit space business and and the you don't need to have 50 people's take on i don't know the tech industry in china or you know you don't need 50 Stratetries. You need a really good stratetry and yeah, maybe yeah. a second, right? But if you look, the information, Axios, uh, hopefully what I'll get done with Inside where I just hire researchers and teach them to write if they need help with writing, but no more writers and teaching them to research. Because the problem I've had is I find journalists and they haven't read any books about business that, you know, you and I would be like, if I just yeah. listed top 10 business books right now, if I said, oh, did you guys read uh, Lean Startup, Bad Blood, uh, uh, yeah. um, Crossing
1: Payment the Chasm, Good to Great. You know, it's like, yes, right. yes, yes. Poor yes, Charlie's yes, Almanac, yeah. like, like yeah. all of them. I've yep. read Seven all Seven Powers, them. yeah. Seven and Powers, yeah. I,
2: I try to, I, I literally ask a journalist They've to read one They've all been of those on books, our show. <laughs> and they're like, will you, literally I asked journalists to read like Lean Startup and they were like, will you pay me to read it? And I was just like- Holy fuck.
0: Like, you're literally great do journalists not... who have read that. Like, I bet if we call up Brad Stone at Bloomberg, oh no, Brad yeah, he's I mean, all that's a that gen just, Xer. That's a gen
2: Xer. Right? I'm talking yeah. about this next generation. They they yeah. literally are anti-capitalist. Well, that's what, that, they're that's anti-business, what makes... and they don't read business books, and they hate business. But that's
1: the thing is like you know, the, and then what what makes your show, what makes our show I work, is it. like we're the journalists now, but we're also the practitioners.
2: Yes, like. the experts. It's sort of like Balaji was sort of pointing out about what we do is an expert having their own medium and unpacking for 90 minutes like Sam Harris is doing or Joe Rogan does for comedy yep. or UFC. Like, it's not citizen journalist because citizen journalist connotes as a citizen who does acts of journalism. This is expert journalism.
1: Expert, yeah.
2: yeah. And it, it's an expert saying, I'll learn how to be a host. I might not be the best journalist. I might not be the best host of a podcast. I may talk over the gas, whatever. I may be rough on the edges, but I do this for, this is my day job. So I, I have better access and better insights than
0: Tim
1: Ferriss has done this better than anyone.
0: Yes, and there's and there's a cycle. Like, then they do it for a while. They get better at it. Then they don't talk over the guests. Then they're able to weave narrative in. Then they become an uh, imaginative storyteller. Like these things can be learned on top of a base of of domain knowledge.
2: Learning the domain knowledge much harder than learning the skills of a journalist or a host of a podcast basically. And you know what who said this was Jason Ponton, who was running MIT's technology review, said he gave up hiring journalists and trying to teach them science and hired science graduates and taught them how to be journalists. And that's why he was able to cover nanotechnology or biotechnology uh, is because he was like, it's just too hard to teach a writer to do, you know, to know some uh, vertical. Okay, going around the horn really quick. Uh, any thoughts on Facebook buying
0: Giphy for 400000000 hundred million? Ben's uh, got a story. Nice bailout. Okay, explain. I just think... I don't think this is a super hot take. It's not this like data acquisition that uh, is this amazing silver bullet that, oh my god, now Facebook has these deep data hooks into all these organizations. If you really dig into what they got there, the data wasn't really anything they didn't already have. Um, But... Giphy provided a valuable service. Tenor was really only the other competitor out there. Facebook had effectively taken a dependency on Giphy, uh, and as had many other services. So if it it went away, that would have been bad. They didn't have a sustainable business model, even though you know they'd done a lot of work trying to do sort of licensed content, promoted content, um, and you know when I think they were either raising their next investment round or in talks with Facebook about whatever their normal partnership discussions are, um, I think it just sort of became something where Facebook figured probably a good thing for us to own this so it doesn't die or get owned by someone that we don't like yeah and they had raised um their had, last post was at a 600 so wow. it was a haircut for the last round investors and there somebody was tweeting uh
2: they had been part of a crowdfunding site that was like an angelist competitor that went under so matt uh Hoggy, I think is how you pronounce his name. Anyway, Giphy was bought by Facebook. I was surprised since I participated in their early investing experiment through AlphaWorks, which was like a, I think, an angelist competitor, but never got any emails about this. In July 2014, I invested the minimum of $2,500 in Giphy. I want to show you how this investment panned out. Uh, congratulations, you're now an investor in Giphy. Uh, Giphy did another round in 2015, and in total, they raised $72 million, but sold to Facebook for $400 million. Tech investing is like Hollywood accounting because something can sell for 10. million times or 50 times what investors put in and investors can barely break even the top 5x the 5x multiplier means i make it a little back i know someone that put a few grand into the friends and family investment in a company that raised an angel single digit millions but sold for half a billion dollars i thought it would net them at least a million out of such an incredible return but they only got 5x what they put in alpha works changed their name in late 2015 and the twitter account associates and updated so anyway they got acquired and um It's a long tweet stream that we'll put in the show notes. Uh, What are you guys' thoughts on this? And explain to a layperson who might be on AngelList or the syndicate what happened here and why the early investors got ghosted, never got any information, and then in all likelihood got hosed. But we'll see what the eventual outcome is.
0: Preferred stock.
2: So explain Um, it in layman's terms.
0: So Uh, the, um, I guess, market... Price at least in the early stage investment is a 1x, which means that um, the uh, liquidation preference on uh, any of the first money out uh, will go to the investors up to the exactly the amount, hence the 1x that they put in, supposing uh, that they decide not to convert to common, which basically means if the deal is for less than the amount that they previously raised at, um, then the investors are going to get their money back first. Uh, their last round was a $72 million raise that, that valued them at that $600 million. I don't know the total amount that they raised, maybe in the $100 range, um, which men- means that if this early investor didn't see anything then there was a multiple on the liquidation preference somewhere along the line, likely in that last round, which meant that those investors would have gotten their money back over earlier investors and
1: especially in over this the case common. it
2: would have had to have be been a five X or something, right? Because if they bought it for yeah, four hundred so million. I'm
0: curious. Depends about how that. much
1: total capital they raised.
2: If they raised a hundred million and that last round was seventy two, if they had a three X liquidation on the last round, which would be incredibly well, high. Right.
1: But also it might 200. not be that you know, 400s the reported price. You know, maybe there's an earnout, maybe there's a carve ah. out for the founders, maybe that, you know right. You know, so if there was an earnout, let's say two hundred million in cash and yeah. two
2: hundred million earnout, and they had a three X liquidation preference, the last investors would get all of it. They would get all the money, and then maybe somebody if there was an earnout would get that. This is why it's important f- uh for you to number one, trust the person who's the syndicate manager. And I think in this a case there is no manager. They sold the company twice. And I think a shore fund management, which we're investors in, which was the back end for uh Angelist for a long time and a lot of other platforms like Seed Invest, they do the SPVs. That company, I think, uh became the stewards of these investments. That doesn't mean they were actively managing them like a manager like us. But that's the active manager's job is to make sure that the capital gets preserved as best it can. We did two things to avoid this type of tweet storm, which this could have happened to me for an early investment or two in my syndicate. Um, we had a company, uh, Video Pixie, that like, refused to send updates. It was like a YC company, so they were super entitled, and they wouldn't send. I shouldn't really talk out of school about companies, but anyway, this one was such a disaster. I had like these fights with the founders over and over again because they wouldn't tell the investors how much revenue they were making. They wouldn't tell me unless I would meet with them in person. And they're like, well, we talked to YC's lawyers, and they said, we don't have to give you information. I'm like, you might need more money, uh, Dipshits in the news, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I you want me in your Yes, technically corner? you don't have to. I guess I'm like learning the documents as well. It was like one of my first five investments as a syndicate. I was like, yeah, but I gave you money, like a quarter million dollars. Why wouldn't you want to tell me how my investment's doing? And these guys were such idiots; they like wouldn't give basic information. Then the company went out of business. They were like, oh, this is why why Combinator doesn't like me. So they're like, I breathe down these guys' throats. I was like, you damn right, I breathed <laughs> breathe fire down their throats. Like they wouldn't tell the investors how their investment was doing. That's why we put into our documents a side letter that says, you will give us monthly updates as part of this investing. Now, would we sue a founder? And do we get 12 updates from them? No. We probably get on average six, seven, eight updates a year. It's a lot more than zero. And if they hit three months without sending us one and I call them and it's like, we haven't got one in three months, I can point to the side letter and say, you know, you did agree to monthly. It's been three months. Can you try to hit monthly for the rest of the year? Right? I can be reasonable about it. Um, And the reason we want the monthly update from you is so that we can invest more. Then I said, if we own over five percent, we have the option of a board seat and or ten percent is what we used to do. And now I say 5%. five percent. people want wow. me on their board, but that's an aggressive term that I started putting in. I said, listen,
0: if you want do you personally sit on the board?
2: What I do is I do a team approach, so I'll have Ashley, who's one of our managing directors. We have 20 boards that we're on collectively and one of the two or three of us will go to that. So Presh and Jackie are starting to come to with me now. So the four people on the investment team, some combination of them will be at the board meeting. Some people only want me there. I'll have a discussion with the founder about like that might be unrealistic, but okay. And then we don't take the option every time. But at least you have that. Then you have the protection of knowing that a deal's coming. And you have a seat at the table to protect against something like this. And you can communicate. Because if these investors had a chance to be in that round and said no that would have been great then they could say like listen you had the opportunity to be in this round you passed it was pay for play if you had if matt had put 2500 in that round he would have got triple his money and his first investment wouldn't have gotten money but his last one would have so those are the protections just for people who are wondering we'll we'll take a deeper dive into this and something else but what, what do you think uh, Wait, do, you,
0: do you do you know the other previous thing uh, interesting other previous cap table thing uh, after they raised the $17 million at an $80 million valuation, uh-huh. or, I'm sorry, just before that, uh, Facebook actually tried to acquire them. This was back in oh my like, Lord. late 2014. So, so if this is the them, second go around with Facebook. So if Facebook had bought them for $80 million,
2: that first group of investors who invested at $10 million would have Probably had a 7 x or something, which yep. they would have felt great about. Right? Nice investment, yep. 7X in five years. So anyway, uh, buyer beware. These are high-risk investments. The later stage investors do beat up on the earlier stage investors, and that's why you have to have a strong manager to be able to mitigate against that. That's what I've spent the last basically five years doing is building in triggers for me to protect the investors. You can't do it every time. A big investor can come over the top. Like you need only watch Billions or any other sharp elbowed show about you know. <laughs> Great show. Uh, you know, if you watch Billions, like yes, people are doing nasty swinging elbow shit. But if you got a, somebody who can swing elbows like me too on your team. I've had to swing elbows at people like I've had this happen. Have you guys had this happen where people try to cram you down or or block you after you've made an initial investment and screw your LPs?
1: Uh, I was involved in a, like a total recap uh, scenario once. And that was, yeah. I mean like if there were any, you know, quote unquote passive folks in that situation, like, they not only were they just getting run over; like nobody was even thinking about them. Like it was only people were Did they who were even inform the them table.
2: that they were about to be washed, or did they tell them
0: retroactively they were washed? Yeah, yeah, they know? got they got
1: informed, yeah. you know. But it was like, like it was after the the recap was already structured and agreed upon.
0: And yeah, I've seen, seen a handful of pay to plays, and everybody gets the notice that you're gonna have to pay to play, and it sucks to to see that. But like, at least they told you.
2: Yeah, pay to play is. I always tell my founders like. When you do that pay-to-play stuff, just understand that now you've ruined your relationship with all those previous investors. You're never going to be able to raise money from them again because they're going to feel screwed unless you've really communicated to them and you can say, listen, I talked to 40 investors. They all said no. The 41st said yes. If we bring the company from a $50 million market cap down to a $20 million valuation, which means that we're going to recap. And in order for you to have shares, you've got to put more money in. I'm sorry that it came to this. We tried everything we could. Here's a list of everybody we you know, reached out to. But you know, very few people do it that way. Um, but I've told people if you if you choose to do that stuff with us, um, you know, I had one founder who just, as part of a down round, re upped themselves to like some, you know, massive amount of equity, and they said, well, the person doing the investment forced me to take more shares, and I was like, well,
1: <laughs> oh, that's a that's a good one.
2: Yeah, and I was, I kind of had that reaction, kind of laughed. I was like, well, what about all of us who put money
0: in? Like, yeah, did you did you push back on that at all? Or no? I push back on it tremendously no, no no like your 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 question to them
2: well then i said like okay well you know we put all this money in do we get if you want us to continue do we get more shares or whatever and you know they were like well you know, i had no choice and you know and I, so then i was just i disengaged from the company i said you know we'll monitor our investment here we'll consider every round i said but after you gave if after you gave yourself a massive reward for failing to grow the company that makes it hard for me to tell my LPs and my syndicate to invest more money, right? And I had this like very candid discussion with them. They still didn't understand it, like, but I had no choice. Was it,
1: a, was it a pivot to a new business or no. was it a continuation? No, it was a down oh, round no, because that's... you know
2: they, they got a couple of bad beats. That happens. Yeah. But I said, and he said, well, how would you have done it? I would have said, to the existing investor, I would have said, I can't take this, but I'm willing to discuss it in a year if I hit these targets, getting a new grant and if the board approves it like, no, the new investor would never do that. I was like, okay, I'll talk to the new investor. And he wouldn't let me talk to the new investor. He's like, I think you'll kill the deal. And I was like, okay, I won't talk to the new investor. You know, like there's only so much I can do and the wins are so big. I don't want to be up in a founder's grill about this stuff. But founders do need to know. And that's why I talk about it. And I'm creating a composite here. Nobody would be able to figure out the company. But I talk about these composites on the podcast so the founders know what's going to happen if you screw previous investors. I think they're...
1: You- there is a there are two scenarios here one is like the what you're talking about is is, is definitely bad like you're continuing the business uh, the other is like you're you're like the business didn't work you're shutting it down and you're you're pivoting to a new business uh that is a little bit of a different scenario sure. and actually the best thing to do in those cases i've found is uh, actually brain damage the is just just kill the company yes less it. bad feelings less bad fred,
0: feelings, fred wilson yeah. has like an amazing blog post on this that jason i'll send you so you can put in the show notes of like yeah. why it's better it's just to just easier. end the company in that situation.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing I've seen is giving warrants to people. So you keep the valuation where it was, but you give people 10 war. If the company became worth one-tenth the price, the new investors buy a share at the last price and they get nine warrants they can buy anytime in the future at this. So if it does work, you essentially keep the valuation where it is. There's all kinds of creative things to do. Um, but uh, always think about your investor's W- Big one picture. quick yeah, one ahead. quick
0: point here I want to make on on Giffy before we move on and I know yeah. we've beat we we have killed lightning round here but we killed uh, lightning round. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, switching from deal to intrinsic, um, we, we like to go long on acquired. <laughs> yeah, w- one reason why Giffy didn't have any negotiating leverage here is they didn't have a material business. They weren't obviously a sustainable business, but why didn't they? You know, they're this. Uh, they have. A crap ton of daily active users. I don't know what it is—high million, high hundred millions. Um, And uh, so, what's the deal? Well, they don't actually have a strong relationship with those daily active users. Most people, I think, more than fifty percent of the Giphy traffic actually comes from Facebook through APIs. Which means, if you think about Slack's API and all these other APIs, most people are not going to Giphy.com. So, if they were going to have an ad-based business model, they don't really have an opportunity to sort of. Say hey, what about this GIF? You know they they really are at the mercy of who's calling the API, and unless they're just going to like load um, sponsored I- images into there, you know it's they don't have a big canvas to work with there. And so I guess the moral of what I'm saying here is, and this really ties it all the way back to the clubhouse thing, is think about. If you're one of these consumer companies who kind of has a tiger by the tail, but you need to think about business model at some point, you kind of need to think about like, okay, what type of relationship do I have with the user? How strong is it actually? How much Mm. time do they spend with me? How much do they remember the name of my brand? Uh, How much are they coming directly to me, not through another tool? And then make sure that your canvas is broad enough that whatever your business model is ad or asking for money or whatever it is, like make sure you can actually do that. Because in Giphy's case, there really wasn't a way to do it.
2: Yeah. There was no business model there. I mean, I, it's really challenged. I, what do you think the business model will be for Clubhouse? We, we, were, we teased that a little bit early on. But we will wrap with Clubhouse. What do you think the eventual of the product, we all like the 1.0 of the product, what do you think that product ultimately is to consumers at scale in terms of business model?
0: Well, one thing I would try if I were them is promoted clubhouses. So right now the UI is literally just like, here's a clubhouse, here's a clubhouse, here's a room, and you know you, each room sort of is just a set of people. And that's not going to scale, right? That's going to become a really tall list really fast. And so discovering your rooms is going to become either rooms where your friends are in it or rooms where someone notable is in it. And you want to discover one of those two paths.
2: So you open up the app, it shows you the two rooms your friends are hosting, and the third room... Is a talk show, or you know, a QVC talk show type thing, or a promotion? Well, or for even Goop. exactly
0: what's going on right now, where you've got some celebrities hanging out. But assuming that lots of celebrities are going to want to do that, you could open up uh, a sort of event style model where you yeah. pay for placement and say, "Hey, yeah. like, if you want to reach this huge audience that's in Clubhouse, we'll put you. And you, you want to do a Clubhouse with them? Like, cool. We'll 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 build you a stage here, and we're going to charge you for it.
2: So if you're Star Wars, Moon and the coming out. You have, you know, the director or John Favreau comes on and does a fireside chat and Disney pays for that and gets a link to Disney Plus to sign up for it. And it, it, it does a try, promotional thing.
0: Yeah, I would try it. I think there's lots of other other, you know, advertising. David, or, what do you think? Which is your favorite.
2: What's your favorite model for it? Oh
1: well, I mean I'm biased, but uh you know, the LP shows worked pretty well for us. And like, you know, I could imagine running that on Clubhouse. Um you know, you've got some influencer has following uh, and um, it's a subscription service or a paid- That's what a, I think. You know, I think that's a, what they're going to do. I'm with you. Behind the thing. scenes.
2: I think it'll become like, um, you remember fan clubs? People would pay to be in the Britney yeah, Spears yeah. fan club or, yep. you know, whatever. The Grateful Dead were kind of like this giant fan club. But people used to have like a paid fan club and you would get a newsletter, yep. I guess. was You would get like every month a newsletter, but then it kind of became a phone call. Like you would call into a phone number and- You would get some artist. So imagine you're Tim Ferriss and you have Tim Ferriss's Clubhouse and Tim says, I'm going to just go on there, you know, uh, five times a month and you can be a member for 10 bucks a month or five bucks a month. And it's sort of like a Patreon model. And, you know, uh, have you guys, what do you think the previous best iteration of Clubhouse was? And then have you seen anybody kind of pivoting towards Clubhouse as we often see in this kind of space? House Party, I guess, was sort of like Clubhouse for video?
0: Yeah, I mean, the closest thing is actually the thing that that the founders also started inside of their little incubator that was their shell entity for this called Talk Show. It was live podcasts. And I think like Simil Shah had been on a bunch of them. Um, but you can kind of see how they jumped from this sort of like tune in to someone talking now to tune in and maybe we can all talk to them now. Right. So I think, yeah. that The that, serendipity
2: I, is kind of the strength of it right now. I'm interested to see if this thing wears off. Like, I I, I got a little bit of clubhouse fatigue the last couple of days because when I went on, I noticed...
1: Is that because you didn't get into the deal? No.
2: (laughs) I I had noticed it even before the deal was announced that when there's somebody notable in there running it or a couple of friends, it's really interesting. So when I was on there, I was interviewing Adam from Quora and I interviewed... um, uh, Alexis from uh, Reddit and initialized. They just happened to be on there and I just did a mini interview. And then Ben Horowitz came on and I just took over the microphone because there were 20 people who had the microphone time. And I said, oh, Ben Horowitz is here. Let's do a mini interview, Ben, da, da, da. And I started asking questions. I just took the thing over. And in both of those cases, the rooms just grew and grew and grew because you had some professional moderation. Other times I come in and people are just like screaming and talking and then you get these lulls and they're like, what next? And like, I don't know, let's all change our avatars. And it's like really boring, right? <laughs> Like, that's what people were doing. They were changing their avatars and then saying, three, two, one, refresh. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. But I do think you're going to have, just like there's YouTube stars or podcasting stars, there could be clubhouse moderator stars, like mods who are just Mm -hmm. like this. And it's,
0: I will tell you, it's a different skill set. Like, I thought my podcaster skill set would translate. But like, the thing that makes Acquired great is David and I go do a crap ton of research, crawl down an internet rabbit hole, and then turn a narrative and, you know, pull it, turn it into a narrative and pull out key themes. And... Like in Clubhouse, the skill is you have about half a second to come up with like the wittiest, most clever novel thing you can to the last person that someone said. And it's a totally different skill set. And Dinner so I party. think there's going to be new new creators in there that thrive in that new format. It's like a salon for it's like you have to be good at the salon
2: format of the news roundtable format, which is yeah. you have to be uh-huh. able to state. Well, no, it's true. And think about what we did today in a news roundtable. You know, I've got two really smart guests with a lot of experience. I put stuff up. I I put myself out there and I try to be vulnerable. And like, my, here's my opinion, and I, I'm showing you that I'm going to be totally candid and honest. Hope to get you candid and honest. And then when you say something interesting, I try to loop the other person in, and you you'll see me say, "Oh, that's great, David Ben. What do you think of that?" Or "Ben, where do you fall on the cynicism to yeah, you're most a great cynical of it?" But yeah. you know that took time to do, and you know you're a McLaughlin grew, right? Yeah, and probably a third of them are roundtables or 25. percent It's called passing the ball, and so. When you're on CNBC, if you really want to be good at that, what you have to do is at the end of what you're saying, like they bring me on as an expert, Shamath on as an expert, but what's it's really good is if there's a sentence to be another person on or passing it back and saying, Well, Carl, you know, what, do, what do you think? I mean, are you, you going to upgrade to an iPhone 11 or are you fine with your iPhone 10? I mean, just look at yourself, look at your family. What is your pattern? Do you line up? Would you even think about going the next day to get the iPhone or are you going to wait? He's like, oh, that's a fair point. Yeah, you know, we we actually uh, we wait now. We do it every other time. That's when you can pass the ball like that and get an assist. It's kind of like LeBron, who, you know, or like Michael Jordan passing to Steve Kerr or LeBron passing to somebody and like they hit the three pointer. It makes him just an even more dynamic player.
0: Yeah. So the people that have compared themselves to Michael Jordan in the last two days include Massa Son and Jason Calacanis and Chris Saka. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so? oh,
0: no boy. i i i i
2: compared myself to lebron to be clear but yeah. no I, I do think passing the ball is like
0: really the, the yeah that's a great point um, it is
2: you guys
1: how do a pretty is nice the Last dance by the way
2: I, I i can't watch it because of the ptsd from the knicks i, I was at all uh, those games but now that is it done and how many parts is it
1: uh, it's 10 i'm on episode six right now uh is it completed but I, think, I think nine and ten just came out
0: yeah, I My plan was, was to days, wait, so and then
2: I am uh, 10 parts just finish it. I am so exhausted from this goddamn coronavirus shelter in place.
1: Jason, you're going to love this. I've yeah.
2: decided, I've decided to making an announcement today that I'm going to take a month off.
1: Whoa. Nice.
2: Yeah, and when I say take a month off, I'm taking a fucking month off because m- my brain is fried. Now, I don't know if I'll make it 10 days, but my intention is to rent a beach or a lake house somewhere and I am going to reset my brain for 30 days this summer or over Christmas or sometime in the next six months. Because I, I mean, how are you guys doing through this? I love it. Life? I
1: just tried to do this. Uh, and actually, I ended up being successful, but uh, it's hard. I, I had like two false starts. Uh, of taking but, breaks. Like,
0: and you did two weeks, right?
1: Yeah, I did two weeks. Yep. And I wasn't totally off, but like the first time I tried to do it, first and second times I tried to do it, I'd be like, okay, yep, I'm taking a break. But then nothing changes. Like, you know, like, oh, yeah. I'm still doing I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. I'm still yeah, doing it. No, my like,
2: idea is to find something I can do with the family that's off the grid and that takes like yeah. attention every day. So I was thinking about maybe a whitewater rafting trip or maybe driving across the country. You know, yeah, I'll check my email at the end of the day or whatever. But I'm thinking about like doing something like that where I do like a two week or something, you know, uh, maybe a month. And then, you know, I'll still, f- I'll probably phone in for the accelerator, probably the only exception. And I'll just book eight episodes of the podcast ahead of time, do eight great interviews, and then, you know, and bag them, which I could do in a week. But yeah, yeah it's just, I, how, you are you got, how are your brains? Though. How are your brains right now through coronavirus? Is this impacting you guys? Like, psychologically? Sure. How?
1: This is weird. It's like, weird, yeah. It's, it's weird, and, you know, there's, like, such a, um, there's such a quest for certainty right now. Because yeah. it's uncertain, but the end of the day is like nobody actually knows what the fuck is going to happen. You have to
2: surrender to it, right? Like it's a really yeah. scary thing to think this thing could mutate, and the next wave could kill children instead of old people.
0: Why? Well, it, and it's not even or, this or thing, any it, other permutation, right? The the craziest thing is we're we're actually very lucky that either the viral coefficient wasn't higher or that the um, fatality rate wasn't higher. Like, if it, what if this thing had been as fatal as SARS, and like the next thing could. It's 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 wild to to wrap the mind around yeah. that actually we're luckier that it wasn't worse.
2: Yeah, to to see 30 whatever percent the unemployment's going to wind up at 20%, 35 million people whatever it is. Like to see all of this happen concurrently and then still not know on a disease basis exactly what's going on because and you know again, we, it's not a political show, but when you look at execution and leadership, it really does matter like your ability to have great leadership to have people in office who can execute. And from top to bottom, I mean.
0: This is not a political show, listeners.
2: It's not a political show. <laughs> I mean, we did bring up Elizabeth Warren and AOC, but I, I kind of, it kind of proves my point. Like, they, they shouldn't be involved in entrepreneurship. And then when you look at their job they're doing, I mean, the job that's been done here has been done, executed so poorly. We can't even get people to wear a goddamn mask. Like, this is the most. Uh, The most basic request that from top down, top to bottom, every single political person should walk up to the goddamn podium wearing a mask and say, I'm now going to lower my mask to speak to you for 30 seconds because everybody is 10 feet away from me. And we know that when you were within six feet, if I were to cough on this microphone, it would need to be sterilized, da-da-da-da-da. And we need to have everybody comply and just wear a mask. And we need you to wash your hands. And we have masks and Clorox wipes that will be delivered by the U.S. Postal Service to every mailbox every month, and the government's paying for it. So you do not have to worry about your Clorox wipes or your hand sanitizer or your masks. And if you have them, please give them to your neighbor or keep them for the next pandemic. These three basic things, washing your hands, using the antibacterial, wearing the mask is your national duty. I'm Jason Calacanis, you know, president of the United States. Like, why can't the fucking (laughs) president say something that simple? Why can't every leader say something that simple? And why can we still fly on packed planes but not work at a factory? Why can you go to Bart and Trader Joe's but not build a Tesla? None of this makes sense. And nobody can seem to explain it in plain English to everybody. Like, what's your explanation, Ben? Like, how would you explain to people they can go on a packed United flight with 300 people in a canister for five fucking hours?
1: I see that assist there. That was nice.
0: That was nice. I mean, well, look. How, I I think how do you explain uh, this? The, the part of the reason I think that we're in sort of this like, um, you, it's confusing. You can do one thing but not the other right now. Is, you know, the 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 purpose of shelter in place when it started was not everybody stay in your house till there's a vaccine. It was everybody stay in your house so we don't overwhelm the hospital system. Yep. Now yep. that. With the exception of a few cities, we didn't overwhelm the hospital system, or at least maybe we did, but we're sort of like back. No, below even New York, they had extra beds. Now. Every
2: every single place has had extra beds. Nobody hit capacity. In some
0: places. There was, but like there were lots of places in New York that were actively doing triage on which life to save, and that sucks. Yeah, um, but is that uh, correct?
2: At the peak, they were they were triaging yes. like that. I thought they didn't run out of beds, but okay.
0: Um, or at the very least, they had enough beds, but like there was not uh, there, not were really there, not were, there were constraints. Maybe not enough. doctors yeah. and nurses. Yeah. And so now we're in this interesting place where, like, uh, we are starting to open things because the purpose is not to stay in our houses until there's a, a vaccine. However, some people totally can stay in their houses till there's a vaccine. Like, I'm one of those people. And, you know, my life is adversely affected in lots of ways, but like, could I tough it out? Totally. And so you're seeing some people who are like, well, I may as well just do that, or I may as well only break a couple rules. But everyone else is saying, look, the floodgates are open. We we did it. We crushed the curve. Now we're out. And so you have this like wild- Do you feel uh,
2: because your job is not impacted in a dramatic way, you can still work. Yep. You haven't been furloughed, obviously. Do you feel that you have- more empathy or less empathy for the person who has no revenue and needs to actually go to a place to get work done that they can't work on a keyboard?
0: I think there aren't natural. Uh, there's not natural empathy created there, but like you got to find ways to think of it. Like my my life is so different than that person's life. Like, do you think they should stay home, or do you think they should go
2: be a gardener, or go be a waiter, or go be a bartender, or whatever it is? Or go I work think in a factory? I think
0: everybody should do the thing that they need to do to make ends meet and take care of their family and do these things. And simultaneously, I think that if you don't have to go to work, you shouldn't go to work yet. So now the and way
2: I... you just said that is so plain English and easy. Why can't a politician say it just the way you did? It was beautifully stated. And we, you do not hear that narrative from any politician. Politicians well, should be saying, if you can say it's hard. I
0: said two things that conflict. So what's the policy out of that?
2: The policy is, it's very <laughs> simple. I'm about to tell you something that sometimes in life, you will have conflicting uh, thoughts and conflicting instructions. Just like we can, this is a lose-lose situation. The pandemic is deadly for certain groups of people. We know that that's confirmed and it spreads like wildfire if you don't take precaution. And we know that people die if they're unemployed and opioid abuse and suicide. And we understand you have to feed your family. You don't want to starve. These are two lose-lose situations. If you can stay home and if you can see less people, that's helpful for everybody because it keeps the coefficient down. And if you have to go to work, we understand, please take these precautions, and it's very important you take these precautions and you don't interface with people who are at risk. These are conflicting, but these are complex, nuanced issues, and I don't know why the goddamn politicians and the media that are so polarized can't just tell it straight to the American people. All right, Jason, bring us home. David, what do you got? you have any (laughs) thoughts on that?
1: Uh, that whole thing yeah, thoughts that generally whole thing. david no side. just say I,
2: I i realized i didn't pass the ball to him so he got frozen oh, out on uh, that one so i just want to make sure no well i appreciate the, uh,
1: you know i i not the, the only thought i have is is the old um uh charlie mungerism by way of ben franklin which is uh if you would persuade appeal to interest and not to reason like you actually want people to do stuff you got to figure out some way to like create a, an alignment best? of incentives that it's in their interest to do stuff otherwise yeah, yeah.
2: Here's a very yeah. simple one. Don't kill your grandmother by not wearing a goddamn mask, dipshits.
1: Yeah, that's good. I one. mean, good
2: <laughs> do you do you love your grandma? Then wear a goddamn mask and wash your hands. It's that simple. All right. This has been a great episode. Thanks for uh, tuning into This Week in Startups. Hey, thanks, Ben and David. If you guys don't get the Acquired FM um, podcast, it's absolutely fantastic. And uh, you can subscribe too. They have their LP show, which is really fantastic. And I did a two-parter with them recently. You go buy that, give it a shot. It's well worth it. I think they only charge like 100 bucks a year, right?
0: Yeah, but the main show's free. Come check it the main out. Show's free. Comprehensive history yeah. of every company you care about, lessons learned along the way in any podcast player.
2: All right. Then thanks to my team working really hard remote. Uh, thanks to uh, the investment team, Jackie. Presh and Ashley doing a great job, thanks to the sales and operations teams, Maureen, Charles, and Nick, uh, and uh, thanks to Laura and Heidi, also on operations, and to my sales and business development team, Luke and Matt, keeping the lights on, and it's not easy to sell right now, but you guys are doing a bang-up job. Did I miss anybody on that, Nick? I think I got everybody, right? I think I got everybody. If I left you out, uh, it was not intentional, but really uh one of the great great things great joys of my life uh has built uh, building this team at launch and also at inside and wow what a great job the launch team has done stepping up uh during this time of crises when our founders really need us to step up so i appreciate all the hard work people are working 30 percent harder than i think they do on average so and we already are a hard-working company if you want to chop it up and talk about it some more Acquired FM has a Slack uh, room, uh, which I got inspired to turn ours back on. Ours is at thisweekinstartups.com slash Slack. Is the acquired one, do you have to be a paid member to get in the Slack, or is it for everybody?
0: Nope. But almost everything we do is free. It's yeah. just the uh How just do you the get in the like, Slack?
2: Is it acquired.fm slash Slack?
0: Uh, yep, that's it. Yep.
1: Okay, Button great. on our website.
2: All right, yeah. So go join both of those Slacks. I, and I, I'm in the acquired Slack once in a while. Uh, we'll see you next time on This Week in Startups. Bye, bye.